Hey everybody and welcome back to uh, another special from Link to the Cast, our second and one would have to assume conclusionary part of the Euro 96 Revisited Revisited series from us here. Hasn't been quite 30 years of hurt since the first uh, part but has uh, been close enough. Uh, I'm your host, your, your, your chairperson here for the discussion, Dave Ryan, uh, and I'm joined by the same panel as last time. First, starting up front, the best target man in the biz, Jack Lazell. How are you, friend? Not bad, mate. Just another trip back to the 90s. Got my green Parker on. Got some Oasis records on the side. You know, I'm hyped and I'm ready for this. I'm in the zone. Doing the Lord's work, that creative midfield engine that is Alan Cunahan. Alan, how are you? I'm good. I've uh, just been uh, uh, coming back from... Uh, I was trying to make a joke there and I stumbled all over it and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say I'm well guys I'm good <laughs> Lee how are you <laughs> I re- rounded out the panel left back in the dressing room it's Lee Malone Lee how are you that is extremely harsh to start this off <laughs> I thought I'd uh, I, I, I thought I'd kind of uh, if I was gonna do the, the swerve and a joke on anybody it'd be my uh, my, my days of thunder wife so the, the one who's able to take it the most, I assume. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We go th- we go through the most punishment on the air. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say, I'm surprised three Irishmen have made it this far into Euros. <laughs> oh, the pain is real. <laughs> How are you, pal? I'm good. It's a Sunday evening. I have a drink in front of me. I'm here to chat football. Well, yeah, you can't beat it. Oh yeah, it's it's great stuff, and uh, it's kind of refuge from uh, a world of absolutely mad football in real life that we're all invested in and depressed by this weekend. That we get to go back to uh, uh, a time where only Jack ended up depressed by the end of this tournament. We had no skin in the game. Uh, <laughs> no, but surely you were happy at the end of this tournament. Oh yeah, well look, we, we I'm sure we'll talk about that at length once we get to it. But uh, hey, as we <laughs> yeah. as we talked about in the first episode, I was a full on England supporter for this tournament, so. Uh wasn't just Jack. I was a depressed boy on uh, that. Was it Thursday night or Wednesday night uh, after the semi-finals? Ah, look, we've we've all made mistakes in life and backed the wrong horse at some <laughs> stage, Alan. But we love you nonetheless. Um, this this part of the show is is dealing with the business end of the tournament, the uh, elimination, uh, the knockout stages of uh, Euro '96, and. It's just it's just tense competition. I you know I love the group stages because you have that that fizz of excitement that a major football tournament has come round. But there really is nothing like the knockouts. And um, Alan, when we like we look at latter stages in a lot of other sports, you know I, I think I've been thinking about this a lot lately with uh, the return of all the American sports uh, being all condensed together. And in a lot of those American sports, you get things like a best of seven series for a playoff or a final. You know. That's one way of sorting competition, but really, is there anything more dramatic and tense and prone to narrative than a single elimination football knockout game? Uh, you can't beat it for reasons I'll get into at some of these games, but with the, the extra time and penalty shootout uh, scenario, particularly penalty shootouts, I mean, when you're 11 years old, do you know, when you've been following football for two years for me at that point, like a penalty shootout is must see appointment viewing like those are like if you see a penalty shootout you like say you're just like during the season like obviously league games don't have them but say um like you happen to catch 
the FA Cup replay that ends up going into a penalty shootout. You're going to remember that penalty shootout for like the rest of your life. Like you're going to carry that forward. It will it will Im- leave an imprint on your childhood. And the promise of the knockout stages of an international tournament where penalty shootouts may come thick and fast, and they did in this tournament. Oh my God! It's just like a, you're a kid at Christmas morning. Absolutely, um, and something that's that's great about looking back at a tournament like this, Lee, is when you look back at, you know, all our headlines now. Whenever I log on to my my different uh, football or sports apps, are talking about VAR this and handball rule that, and. There's something that's just a real refresher, being able to go back all this time to 1996 when football was a bit more blood and thunder, a bit more, ah, sure, fuck, it'll sort itself out on the pitch. <laughs> Lads knocking lumps out of each other. Um, what has it been like over the course of these two shows to uh, go back from, from watching modern football in 2020 to, to watching some from the, the halcyon days of 1996? It's strange because I remember like being like, a fan at that time and thinking like you'd watch a game from the late 70s 80s say and you'd look at the challenges and go Jesus you couldn't get away with that now yeah and think you know mid 90s football was all this safe and God it was a lot better and then you look back now like with 2020 eyes and you're going Jesus half of these challenges like the most games would have been abandoned at some stage like yeah. some of the challenges <laughs> especially like the German team in this tournament my God yeah. were they a filthy bunch yeah there <laughs> would have been some some actual prison sentences handed down but yeah, it's it's so strange to go back because you have like, I think us four in particular have such um, nostalgic views of the football we would have watched, and then you watch a bit of it and you go, God, it wasn't really that advanced for when you compare it now to like you see Messi and Mbappe and Ronaldo and do just amazing things with a ball, and then you look at like what these guys were doing. Yeah. It is. It's 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 night and day in some ways. And another thing, uh, Jack, it, it, uh, that's been interesting about going in the wayback machine here, uh, going back twenty four years, is something that struck me looking at highlights here uh, that made me feel very old. Is the amount of players in this tournament, or that are kind of like mentioned or are in around the periphery of this tournament, that have since not only completed their illustrious career in football but retired become managers and in some case already washed out as managers by now in the two decades since it, it's it's really striking going back isn't it yeah you see a lot of young faces uh of guys that you're kind of just used to the way they look now so it's a bit jarring uh it, with the exception of i looked at edwin van der Sar, he was like in his med- mid-20s here for for holland when i was watching earlier before we started and i was like this guy just kind of looks the same, but as if somebody just took Edwin van der Sar from 1996 and drew some lines on his face <laughs> with like a marker pen for yeah. like to show aging. But yeah. other than that, he looks pretty much bang on the same. Yeah, I, I think he had the benefit of like being born in his mid 30s looking at him. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. He do, as, as John Mulaney famously once said, he doesn't look older, he just looks worse. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. yeah. Although his hair's better now. It has yeah. more, like, volume, and it's just kind of up, and it looks cooler. He got better conditioner. Edwin van der Sar, the Arne Anderson of Euro 96. Oh. <laughs> I love it. Edwin van der Sarn Anderson. <laughs> his yes. new name. Yes. Um, why, 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 why did we do this show after I'd already picked my fantasy football team name for the year? <laughs> <laughs> 
that would have been good. I just wanted to pick up on one of the points that um, Lee was making there. And th- this is an important tournament, I think, for, for English football because like we're very much coming out of that haze of the European ban and, and we're just accepting the idea that there are other like tactical philosophies and ways of playing than the traditional sort of blood and thunder English style of football. Um, so this tournament, seeing lots of different teams, managers and players and, and different tactical setups uh, and then guys coming over and being signed over here really did revolutionise football in this country. And uh, I think this was like... There were two steps to, to how things get revolutionized over here. This is very important for driving forward the, the importance of variance in tactics and formations and stuff like that. Um, and you see Venables is already very continental manager, obviously, with being influenced, kind of playing over in Barcelona and, you know, having bringing that actual more cosmopolitan style. But number two, this was before footballers just turned into pure athletes. Now, there always kind of was that um thing of saying like the italian footballers had a lot better conditioning or anyone that played in italy had a lot better conditioning and weren't they on the gas <laughs> i think <laughs> i think some of the yeah some of the juve players were later very heavily questioned with uh Moji's program over there to, to to potentially be on something but uh like people like arsene wenger and stuff he came over and started stressing the importance of like diet and training and uh, and all the things that seem really basic now and those two things i think really kind of changed football and this to me felt like the pivot point for the game changing and those two things becoming more important in this country and the sort of old traditionalists and the values that we had here before of like 442 and five pints after you yeah. finish a game on a saturday evaporate started to evaporate around this time and became very important yeah, I think there's like maybe three flashpoints I can think of over the like uh, the course of this time that really um, help raise the profile of English football. And it's this tournament. Then three years later, it's United winning the European Cup. And then a couple of years after that, it's uh, Roman Abramovich uh, changing the face of modern football as we know it with his takeover of Chelsea. Um, I, I think like you can really chart a progression in the perception of English football um, over the course of those years. It's, it's really interesting one to follow just um, dave if i can interject for two seconds very quick one you can you mentioned the english ban from european football i had heard about that before i actually don't know why that was someone fill me in oh so it was high have you heard of the high school stadium incident no so in the mid 80s um when kind of when football violence was was kind of at its peak uh, there was a champions league final between liverpool and juventus Uh, And there was a a big rock in the stadium and because it was kind of an old crumbly rubbishy stadium, a bunch of uh, Liverpool fans uh, rushed towards the Juve fans and the stadium collapsed on them. Holy Jesus. uh, Quite a few people died. I don't know the exact number. Worse than Hillsborough or similar or... Not as not as bad uh, as Hillsborough. I think it was around thirty or forty people. Thirty nine. Thirty nine people. Thirty nine, including uh, thirty two Italians, which includes two minors, four Belgians, two French, and one from Northern Ireland. Yeah, I I mean by rights the the stadium shouldn't have been really used to, to stage finals, and and this was kind of yeah uh, step one of of stadiums becoming modernised, but. Um, they the the weird thing about it is 
they went on and played the game afterwards as well, which I just think now just is it's the sort of thing that would never happen. And Juventus won one nil in one of the weirdest. Um, if you go back and watch any footage from that, it was just one of the weirdest games of football you'll ever see. Uh, everyone was kind of shell-shocked. To c- compare that to like a, a moment we'd all remember, it's very much like the own heart moment in yeah. football. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so because of this, like English fans had that horrible reputation around Europe, which, by the way, well-deserved, especially in a lot of cases, um, and were banned for from anyone entering any European competitions for five years. Five years, so that would have been eighty what to so it was it happened in eighty five to to ninety, um, but was the ban and yeah it was rough because so Everton actually had maybe their peak of uh of being a very good team around this time and and when we're unable to compete in Europe uh and European Cup as champions and yeah I think. We, we created a few tournaments like uh, there was like an additional cup that was added in the calendar called the Full Members Cup. Uh, there was the Anglo-Italian Cup, which kind of took on a bit more significance around this time. But it was basically like closing our borders to any idea of, of, of football <laughs> other than the, the traditional and not really having the European influence on our game anymore. And uh, uh, quite a lot of guys started going over to Europe around this point as well, because not many people had done that successfully before, really, maybe like Kevin Keegan and then going way back like John Charles and stuff. But uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a horrible incident and a tragic time for football. And yeah, in the 90s, it was still very much like we were trying to reestablish ourselves because English teams still weren't doing great in the in the European competition. You know, it took United a while to get going. Blackburn had an absolute nightmare. Two of their players got sent off in the same game of fighting each other. <laughs> like it, it was just generally shocking. And uh, yeah, this this changed a lot, I would say, this period of time. Um, if we're to pull back for a second before we get specifically into the quarterfinals here in the Euros, um, you know we've we've had a lot of talk about how much we love the knockout rounds of a major tournament. Um, if we were to go around the, the the virtual table here and ask for like it could be club, it could be international football, uh, maybe a highlight and a low light uh, of knockout football for you growing up. Um, we'll start with uh, Lee. Bastard. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Put me on the spot, Jesus. Um, a highlight of, I suppose, like a highlight of knockout football is always going to be for me, ninety nine, but yeah. that's very specific. Um, I think the two thousand two World Cup is always like that's something I could go back and watch every day of the week and never get tired of it. Um, and there wouldn't really be one specific moment except seeming maybe getting lobbed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not not even a moment. Robbie, Robbie Keane's Keen. goal. <laughs> yeah. That well, see, that wasn't in the lockout stages. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, oh, I was grouped. Yeah. yeah, you lost some pens to Spain. I want to say Spain. Yeah, yeah on my yeah. birthday. Oh, I was gutted. I was a very, very much an Irish fan in that tournament, so I actually jumped up and celebrated that Keane goal. Um, but yeah, no, just that, that whole like that whole knockout stage and South Korea being fucking put through to the semi-finals shall we say outrageous what happened to Italy in that game oh just <laughs> unbelievable but yeah no that, that whole tournament is like one of my favourite things um what about you Alan <sighs> <sighs> January 17th 1996 I think you're gonna go January 4th at Tokyo <laughs> <laughs> just just a couple of weeks after the January 4th 1996 Tokyo Dome with uh, what was the main event of that show I think that was uh, <laughs> that Fujinami against uh, 
against uh, Tenru. Oh, that might have been April. Anyway, um, yeah, a very sad evening for me and a very good evening for my friend Jack here. Newcastle United 2, Chelsea 2. Is this a penalty penalty shootout win? A last minute of normal time equaliser by Rude Hullet, our future manager, who then just took us to the dogs as manager uh put a knife in our hearts here before even then with this equalizer to make a two all force extra time and then ultimately a penalty shootout which saw peter beardsley and steve watson miss the first two penalties for newcastle and then chelsea were perfect and jack how many of chelsea's four perfect penalty takers do you think you can name oh i know kevin hitchcock was in goal and saved those penalties he was. Uh, Dennis Wise. Dennis Wise took one, scored one, and also scored the first equaliser in normal time from a penalty. Gavin Peacock, maybe? Gavin Peacock, indeed. Yeah. Paul Furlong? No, he he came... No, he was on the bench. He didn't come out. As, as I live and breathe, Jack being stumped on Chelsea is just something I never thought I'd see. I was going to say Mark Steen? Nope. Oh, well, that's all the strikers gone. <laughs> one <laughs> yeah, of these, one of these, you definitely won't get because I don't even know who this person is. And then another one, I remember because it was the winning penalty. I remember particularly the guy who scored it. What Look, was Dan? Pre- was Dan Prochescu there at that stage? He was. He played right back, right was. wing back. Yeah. Will, will I give you the answers? Uh, can, give me. Can you give me any clues? Um. <laughs> well, uh, considering is- <laughs> considering I I don't know one. The guy is the best I can tell you about him is he scored the opening penalty, so they they trotted him out there first. Um, what was his initials? DL. Uh, David Lee. Yeah. C- yeah. Center, okay. Center that- back. Um, AKA Rodney, because he looks a little bit like Nicholas Lindhurst. <laughs> <laughs> then it was Dennis Wise. Then it was Gavin Peacock, and then the winning penalty was a dagger through my heart. But I actually kind of like this player, so. Uh, um yeah but it was uh still tough to take eddie newton eddie newton <laughs> wow eddie newton was on a pen that is crazy eddie newton who scored barely any goals in his career except one in the fa cup final which kind of puts him down as a chelsea <laughs> legend uh one year or like about 18 months specifically later than that but yeah i mean david lee and eddie newton when you're thinking of that era, guys who'd be scoring penalties, they are not two that would immediately jump to mind. But wow. Big Les Ferdinand must have got injured in this match because bringing Darren Hooker beyond for him in the 64th minute, that seems like a questionable decision otherwise. Oh, do you know what? Dar- Darren Peacock got sent off in the 60th minute, so it might have been a tactical thing in response to that. Yeah, and it still took us till the end to equalise. Wow. Yeah, Alan, thanks for that, mate. I, uh... I'll get a, uh, Mr. Forel back on this one. The uh, main event of the 96 Tokyo Dome was indeed Choshu versus Fujinami in a double title match. Oh, I was thinking the Tenru Fujinami match um, that happened, I think it was in April. So if an- if anyone, by the way, had 25 minutes in the when would Alan break down a Tokyo Dome main event sweepstakes, uh, <laughs> you will now be paid out. Although he got it wrong, so Alan's a fake New Japan fan and I'm a fake Chelsea fan. All the revelations are coming out. I'm a fake Pro girl, you're a fake Chelsea girl. Jack, uh, if we're to exclude uh, cup finals as the obvious ones, uh, some of your highlights or lowlights of uh, of uh, elimination football. So the best, I, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you put finals and stuff out of it. The best knockout uh, Champions League game uh, second leg I've ever seen in my life was Chelsea 4, Barcelona 2. 
at Stamford Bridge in, in 2005. Uh, you had Ronaldinho, who was Ball- in Ballon d'Or form that year. So Chelsea were, went 3-0 up inside 20 minutes. Absolutely crazy circumstances. Uh, Lampard, Duff, and Johnson scored the goals. And it was just like madness because 20, 20 minutes in, you're 3-0 up at home against Barcelona after having lost the first leg 2-1. It was, yeah, something special. And then Ronaldinho just took matters into his own hand. You, you must have felt like West Brom out there. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then they nearly did the comeback on us that we did yesterday, which was Ronaldinho scored a penalty. Uh, and then one of the most outrageous goals I've ever seen, where he's on the edge of the box with like four people standing in front of him and just flicks it, like scoops it with the outside of his foot into the top corner. That is a classic if I describe if I was ever to describe a goal as a scoop. That's the one. It just, I didn't, I, it, there was no backlift whatsoever. He just like, f- like a little flick into the top corner. Nobody even scouted it. Uh, and then we managed to score a John Terry, captain leader legend header uh, in the second <laughs> half to go through, just trying to troll everyone, uh, to go through. And it was just a magical, magical night. I, one of the best, like, it's the best football game I've ever been to in my life, honestly. The feeling was insane because that was like, right the the first like big Jose Mourinho Champions League showdown game that we'd had in the Abramovich era and when we came through it against the team that won the Champions League like the next year and, and Ronaldinho who's still to this day the best uh footballer I've, I've ever seen play live and and in terms of worsts Chelsea won Barcelona won I was gonna say also a Barcelona game at the bridge 2009 I didn't even want to go into the detail but just the three words i will say are tom henning of robo so there you go google that <laughs> um for the round out mine just a spike jacket say 2008 champions league final because <laughs> that hasn't been mentioned yet incredibly fortunate i didn't want to say that in case my wife is listening so who, who happens to be a chelsea fan <laughs> your wife is very intelligent woman <laughs> i mean she married, married me that's very questionable <laughs> <laughs> both, both of us went to that at the same time. <laughs> oh, look, Too much time to get, get it, Dave. Too much time. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, <laughs> let's get into the matter at hand. Euro 96. We're kicking off the quarterfinals. Um, and it's got uh, everything uh, this tournament is, is infamous for. Um, and that is both uh, an England run and penalties. Jack, it was Spain nil, England nil, a penalty shootout that ended 4-2. Um, we'll kick it off with you, seeing as you know, you're you the, the young England fan, stars in your eyes. It looks like the dream might finally be coming true. Uh, memories of this game. So just to set the scene, so um, I'll talk out some facts, because this happened on June the 22nd, 1996, right? Yeah. So on June the 22nd, 1996, so we've already done UK number ones. So I was just like interested to see what other number ones were. And The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony was number one in America, which I found significant because a Blazing Squad six years later had their only UK number one with that song. And oh my God, is it terrible. This show just had a Blazing fucking... Squad reference. Uh, this show has gone places in half an hour. <laughs> Awful. Um, so we lost um, Diana Ross's brother, Arthur T-Boy Ross, who actually co-wrote I Want You by Marvin Gaye, which is an absolutely awesome piece of music and thoroughly recommend it. But like him and his wife... Um, were murdered over a drug thing and they were like found in a basement it was a really terrible story that I was reading earlier but then to balance it out former Newcastle United midfielder Alan uh, currently at Real Sociedad Mikel Marino was born 
on this day, if you remember him. I don't remember him. <laughs> <laughs> I think he only played uh, 24 games in the Premier League for Newcastle. So This must have been the, the late 2000s or, or the recent decade, I, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was, yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't happen in January of 96, so, yeah. Right. If he, if if it happened in January '96, I could have like told you the name of his cat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, um, I I dearly hope that Jack just has like a periodic Newcastle stat for each game here to try and pop out. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, just to set the scene from uh, what the tabloids were doing before going into this, Piers Morgan, who we'll get to again a bit later because he actually managed <laughs> to top this. The front cover uh, of his paper was a beef eater standing over a prone matador uh, <laughs> to go into this game uh, to send a message, I guess. Uh, he also published the uh, 10 nasties that Spain have brought the world, which is a list that includes syphilis and carpet bombing, uh, just, just if, in case anyone was interested. So we kind of rode into this game on that wave of confidence. And racism. <laughs> and, yes, and epic <laughs> xenophobia and racism. <laughs> but we we obviously beaten Holland four one and everyone was like riding high you know uh, and we were very very nearly humbled even in the first half of this game so like Spain scored a couple of goals that were ruled out for offside one of them is so onside it it just it's painful when you're watching it back uh, yeah. And there's not really I mean Alan Shearer had a good chance in the first half as well but there's not really an awful lot uh, aside from. Uh, to say about the sort of 90 minutes and extra time aside from really Spain probably should have beaten us I don't know if you guys agree with that oh yeah what, watching back the highlights today like I was watching it going my god Spain battered England in the whole of the first half like like you say one of the the, the Salinas goal I think it was that uh, was yeah, Salinas w- was, was so like onside. well onside it had to be like a good yard and a half onside and the linesman like the first person you can see is Adams like how do you not see Tony Adams <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty big, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, like, there's, there really isn't too much to the game. Like, like you said, the Shearer miss from about four yards out. But like, even that's not the worst thing in the world, you know. I, I think it tells a story about how England were battered in parts of this game. That the man of the match was David Seaman. You know, when yeah. you see that a goalkeeper is man of the match, that that really does tell a story. Well, well that ties nicely into uh, one talking point I had, Dave, and that was. Um, David Seaman uh, has a one-on-one in this game. Um, I forget the attacker who was uh, attacking with the ball, um, but Seaman comes out way outside his box, um, like it was, he was way out into the into the pitch, and uh, he he got the better of it. And uh, I think it was like he forced the guy to shoot or something, and basically he he got the better of it anyway. But Ron Atkinson gets more of a boner for a goalkeeper. A piece of goalkeeping than any commentator I've ever heard commentating football match. He was <laughs> so impressed by David Seaman because he felt it was because initially whatever way it looked, it was like oh it was a mistake by the the attacker. But he, then he was like, you know, I actually think Seaman does a thing with his legs. There, he does a thing with his legs where. <laughs> 
he's basically he, he, he's psyched him <laughs> out there with his we can, and he spends the next like five minutes basically begging for a replay and then finally we gets the replay and he gets so excited he's like here we go we're gonna see it here now we're gonna see it we're gonna see it he does this thing you can tell and then it kind of get a bad camera angle and you don't see anything really and then he's like I, I'm pretty sure he did. If we had a different camera angle, you'd see what he did there. But that was one of the greatest pieces of goalkeeping you'll ever see at this level of football. He was so excited. It was tremendous. Ron Atkinson being caught out by a moment that wasn't recorded in a way that he thought. Who would have thought that would have <laughs> I was going to say, moments ago, talk about England riding high on a wave of racism and then big Ron Atkinson comes up. The funniest thing, guys, is uh, you, you, this actually isn't even the best of the racism. That's coming a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> the best of the racism. Well, obviously they saved that for the Germans, I'm sure. Although although the Daily Telegraph, or the Tory Graph, as others affectionately know it, uh, after this game, they, they reference the Spanish Armada by saying Spain still can't beat an English seaman. So yes, that was the uproarious <laughs> pun that uh, we had as a review Jesus. for this game. But yeah, it, it's weird. Seaman is the story of this game, right? I mean, he saves that shot. He saved a really point-blank range shot in the first half and obviously saves um, the penalty from, from the Dow later in the shootout. S- Stuart Pierce is the other story, right? That was a big thing that was played up. I mean, Stuart Pierce walking up to that penalty like six years after missing in the shootout that, that put England out in the semi-finals of 1990, which... I'm sure was celebrated by by Lee and Dave. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was what I was one year old, but yes, yeah, he still celebrated it. <laughs> I'm not saying I had a German kit in 1990, but I probably did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, the, the the just a terrible penalty from Pearson. There was this moment of him walking up where it's kind of like every. Every time it was penalties that w- that would seem to do for England, and we had all of this scar tissue, and specifically this player Stuart Pearce, who'd been such an adept and brilliant penalty taker and and set piece taker for Nottingham Forest for for years of his career, is wandering up to it, and everyone in the country is just like, oh god, just because they knew like if he misses this, it's kind of like the end of it. And he kind of claims that he didn't really think about that much, or he didn't really feel about that much. He has a great interview. They kept the interviews that I think him and Seaman did after this match in on the ITV hub that I watched during the summer. And the Pierce interview is great. And he's talking about how, like, like I've been taking penalties ever since 1990 for six years. And I've been, I, he might have even said he's never missed one or something like that. I don't know if that was true, but he was praiseful of his ability to take penalties. And he was like, I, did, I wasn't worried or I didn't feel nerves. And But I, I don't know, his, his react. His reaction after scoring, like I doubt he celebrated to that degree after like run of run of the mill penalty scored against like Norwich in nineteen ninety four or something Never. like that. In fact, Stuart Pearce notoriously didn't really celebrate goals that much. If you go back on on YouTube and look at an archive of Pearce goals, so many goals he'll score and he'll just raise one up. Is that a thing you do regularly, Jack? Just oh yeah why not i'm just looking up psycho clips um but no his thing would like he'd gimmick would score but instead of doing like the sheer arm raised running around with a big grin on your face he'd just raise one arm as if to say yep i've scored the fa cup final being the famous one isn't it yeah yeah exactly and then but here he just all of the things alan's just said sorry and then just all of the 
things that he's said about this penalty since where he's like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal to me. He scores and then it settles in on him and then he punches the air repeatedly and screams at the top of his voice at the crowd. And I've never seen a more relieved man but celebrating with just absolute fury. Like it was like the demons of the last six years of that hanging over him have just been completely exercised. And it to me, if you're going to show a single clip for the positivity or whatever, like the most English clip, the most shithouse English clip you could clip from this tournament is Stuart Pearce screaming at the top of his lungs. And when they reworked um, Three Lions two years later, they even put Psycho screaming as, as the bit instead of Nobby dancing in, in, in the pre-chorus. Like it, it was just everything. And in that moment, again, after a really terrible performance, after we all started to believe against the Netherlands and then we all immediately thought, no, we're shit again because that's how fickle we are with our team in this country. That Pierce moment, we all started to believe again and it got everyone back on side. And everyone entirely forgets the contents of this game in which we were clearly outplayed by Spain and probably should have lost. And I have to say, I think like everyone like that has ever heard Stuart Pierce talk about playing for England, that's a guy that was incredibly proud to represent England. Yeah. At international level. And the fact that he got that, like, that second chance in a major tournament, like, you, you can't help but feel good for the guy. Yeah, he was a he was a consummate professional, Stuart Pierce. Like, he, he's also the guy that was so tough that he broke his leg in a, in a game when he was playing for West Ham later on in his career and tried to stay on and played on for a minute before they were like, no, no, you're not moving properly. You've got to come off. And it was later found that he had a broken leg. So, like, this is a guy who just, like, he'll give every single ounce of his soul to this sport. And, uh, yeah, it was it was cool that he had this moment because I think it was it was poetic in a way. Um, Chris Waddle wasn't there to atone for his sins, but, but Stuart Pearce was. To move from uh, Wembley up to Anfield for the game later on on the 22nd, it was France versus Netherlands. Again, nil all, again penalties. This time ending with France hitting a perfect five penalties and uh, Seydorf missing for the Netherlands to, to go out. Um, France versus Netherlands, always on paper, a, a very tasty tie uh, in, in a major football tournament. Um I'll go to Alan here first. Um, memories of this game. Um, I, I always feel like growing up, I always have like favorite players in the Netherlands team or, you know, they they feel like just kind of a real continental side a lot. Um, were you a, a Netherlands guy at this time? Were you a France guy? What did you think of this game? Yeah, I, I was I was enjoying what well, you know, I, I probably was still a bit resentful about the Netherlands because they knocked us out of um, USA 94 and then the qualifier for Euro 96. When I s- started watching the Dutch games again, I was like, oh, there's, this isn't as like amazing a Dutch side as I remember there being of this era. Like, There's lots of guys like, like Jordi Cruyff and Richard Witschke and people like that who were kind of like pretty like... Bleh. Not they weren't exactly getting the juices flowing uh, for me on rewatch and and I think it was more like the '98 side where it was just like all through the team you've got these amazing players you have these great memories of so maybe I wasn't super into Holland at this point but it, this was still a pretty much a marquee game um, France versus Holland obviously two of the kind of bigger teams in the tournament and uh, yeah it was. Uh, it, there was some good football played in it. Um, I, I did think that when I was watching it back uh, during the summer, it was, it was a 
some very good football, but not the most exciting game. And I think this was the one where one of the penalty shootouts had just the most incredible penalties taken. I think it was this one. The standard of penalties was excellent for everyone in this game, yeah. Yeah. It was a very tactical game, right? Like, just uh, watching it back, it was just a very tight, tense kind of battle. And it was another one where I thought the goalkeepers, uh, and I don't know if you guys agreed with this, like, watching back, but particularly... Uh, a great save from Lama from Seydorf. He was clean through to like knock it over the bar. And then Van der Sar um, from Djokaev at the back post after a, what we probably saw as one of the initial moments in this tournament where you realised that Dan was going to be a, a proper player, like a, a fantastic little side flick through ball, uh, but a really good save from Van der Sar. And yeah, I, I don't know if you thought, but uh, to me, the goalkeepers were awesome yeah. in this game. Well, again, you have the second game in a day where the winning keeper of the penalty shootout is the man of the match. Lama was man of the match in this. So it it was quite a day for goalkeepers, I think. Um, Lee, what did you think of this one? Yeah, like, again, there wasn't a, an abundance of standout moments in the actual game itself. Like, the, the football that we saw was decent. Um, I thought Jokiev, like, in the highlights again, looked just, like, a step above everyone else at this time. There, there was one point, I'm not sure who hit the crossfield pass, but there was a pass, like, 40 yards that he just takes with one touch and hits an instant volley. That's Peros, um, who we're going to talk about a bit in the uh, next France game. But, yeah, that that was amazing, wasn't it? And, like, to, to, to see that, like, that's just the incredible, the control and the hit, like, it was, and it was, like, some hit was on target and Van der Sar had to make a good save. Um, but, yeah, just to come back, like, the standard of the penalties, my God, like, just, like, unstoppable, most of them, except for poor Clarence Adolf, like, 20 years old, having to step up and take a penalty in a major tournament. Like, you don't envy somebody in that situation. Clarence Seedorf at 20, uh, after he missed his penalty, his career obviously completely failed and he was never seen again. Uh, no, that's actual bullshit. So he went on to Real Madrid later this summer and then won the Champions League with them and then moved to Milan and won the Champions League with them after he'd already won the Champions League with Ajax and became the first player to ever win the Champions League with three different clubs. So, yeah. And it's got to, it got to, got to say as well, like he's one of the... Um, like the foundational players of that iconic Milan side of the early 2000s, that um, that, that Carlo Ancelotti team that I, I still have great fond memories of. Do you know what's really painful watching his penalty back as well? He puts the ball down and then it's kind of not on the spot and it moves a little bit and, and, and the referee says, no, mate, you've got to go and pick that up and take it. Now he looked nervous anyway. But you know when there's a bit of a problem with the penalty, like it's got to be re-spotted or it's got to be moved or something like that, that always spells trouble for me. Or like a player who takes a really long run-up or like it takes ages to get to the ball. You can sense the nerves. Or or say VAR makes you retake it and they switch the penalty taker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that I'm still bitter a week later. Not, not sour on that one at all, Dave, are you? Uh, it was great to see Lauren Blanc smashing the winning penalty as well. I was going to say, to come back to something you mentioned at the start of the show, Lauren Blanc, there's a man that arrived yeah. into the world 20 <laughs> years old. But it was the day where um, 
and I kind of miss it now, the art of the defender taking a penalty. I think Sergio Ramos is the only good modern proponent of this, but it used to be a thing where like you'd have like a big centre back or a tricky fullback who'd take pens. And it seems like now, like uh, attacking midfielders, wingers, and and forwards are the only ones who ever really take penalties anymore. So on a day where the two most significant penalties were Pierce's one for the celebration and Blanc's one for for putting France through, it's kind of a nice to see that old throwback concept of the uh, penalty taken defender, which is a sadly lost art unless you're a shit house like Ramos. I think back then it was just a case of defenders hit the ball a lot harder than anybody yeah, else. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Who will just fucking blast this into the top corner given the chance. Um, Go and watch Frank LeBeuf. I was always a fan of the defender, particularly a centre half, taking a goal kick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is another lost art. <laughs> That's right up there with the, the keeper coming up for a corner. Um, we, look, we'll move on to the, the following day. So this is June the 23rd, right? So on June the 23rd, and this this first fact is for you. A little movie that stars Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage, and Ed Harris surges to the top of the UK movie charts. Name that movie, Dave. The Rock. It is The Rock. The Rock. <laughs> the Rock on this Sunday became the number one movie in the UK after being released a week before. Part of the the, the iconic uh, Nick Cage triple threat where within quick succession he did The Rock, Con Air, and then Face Off. An iconic run of the 90s absolute class uh so he lost andreas uh papandreou who'd been the greek prime minister up until the january of this year and he actually founded a, a major political party in greece called the panhellenic socialist movement um who were formed after like the military coup uh, which collapsed the government in Greece in 1974, and they were like a major party in Greece for about 30 years, and so that was that's quite a significant moment in like world politics, uh, and probably less significant. Charlie Jones, who played Ben Mitchell in EastEnders from 2006 to 2010, was born on this day. So yeah, our our first match on the 23rd of June is Germany versus Croatia, Old Trafford. Uh, this this ended at. Uh, 2-1 to Germany. We sadly bid farewell to Croatia, who I think have spent most of our lifetimes as like everyone's cheeky second or third fave in it, 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 every so often in a tournament. Um, we will go to Lee on this one first. First of all, the one thing that stood out to me was Old Trafford was not anywhere close to full for this like tournament quarterfinal. Yeah. Um, and may- maybe Jack will know this, but were the tickets like extortionately priced or... Because it's something that I notice as well with Anfield. Yeah, and it's something that you notice all the way through the tournament. Really stood out to me as I was there. Is, there's like even like some like like Bulgaria matches and like some of the lower teams and just empty stadiums. Like it was almost like watching the the stadiums now in pandemic football. Yeah, I I couldn't imagine like in in tournaments of the last like fifteen twenty years seeing a single empty seat, let alone as many of them as we were seeing here. No. Yeah, I, I just think the general attitude towards football in this country um, that that was changed a lot by this tournament was kind of endemic of, of that, of the empty stadiums. And no, I don't think the tickets were particularly expensive, but I mean, back then, if you wanted a ticket to something, you had to actually physically go to a place and, and purchase a ticket. It wasn't a case of like you could pre-order it online or you had to go yeah. into a ballot and there I, wasn't that level of interest. I, I suppose as well, Jack, it's probably symptomatic of that pre-Euro 96 attitude towards football in England. There's like, well, England aren't playing, so why, why am I going to see this game? Yeah, and I think, but then you would see, 
I mean, I would regularly see a lot of stadiums in the Premier League, which were nowhere near full. Like, as a guy who would travel, I didn't travel away to uh, Newcastle in, in, in January of 96, though, so maybe I'm not a real fan. But as a guy who would, like, <laughs> semi-regularly travel away to see Chelsea and obviously go to as many of the home games as we could, you know, Stamford Bridge was regularly, like, 25, 30,000, not quite full, and lots of games, lots of stadiums would just have a lot of empty seats, and, and you don't really see that now. Uh, I, th- I think football, the resurgence in popularity of football was, was stemming from this tournament. And I bet you a lot of people now really regret not going to the, to a lot of the games. Because I think now, you know, there's no way you would see this. Every single game would be sold out, even if yeah. it was like Bulgaria versus Romania uh, or something. It, it, it's, prob- it's probably a case where a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I was at that game. like, And it's one of those things that people feel like, oh, they have to say they were there yeah. at the time. Um but yeah, seeing as they've kicked me for the about the match itself, I think a bit of a turning point is that Klinsman gets the first goal from a penalty. But early in the match, he has a kick out. I think it's Vladic, and he just like he kicks his ankles, and it's like very very petulant. And like nowadays, you'd see somebody get sent off for it, but uh, Klinsman only gets booked for. Similar in a way, like in the style to to the thing that Beckham got sent off for two years later in the World Cup, where mm. it wasn't even like. You know, there wasn't a lot of malice about it. It was just like a little flick, and yeah, it wasn't violent. Like it was just like, ah, oh, he's after getting the ball off me. He just yeah, had a kick out, essentially, him. just like a frustrated, like little tap. And yeah, you, uh, I think people watching it now would be completely bemused by the fact that there wasn't a, a red card shown here. And yeah, Klinsman was a very, very significant player in this game. As you know, scored the penalty and just generally part of everything good that uh, that Germany did mm-hmm. going forward. Don't you think? Yeah, for sure, and and like I say, it's one of those like um, sliding doors moments where if the Germans went down to ten men, there's there's really no guarantee they're getting through this game, and then obviously how that affects England's tournament and things like that. <laughs> yeah, so you're quite happy with that turn of events. <laughs> no, like uh, I was, sh- it was just one of those things where I was watching. I was like, like if this game was like four years later, how things would have been very very oh, different yeah, for sure. Um, how good was uh, the the other two goals in this game, though? So I said when we were talking about uh, Paborski versus Suker in terms of which lob we preferred, I said that I thought Suker's goal in this game was even better because it was just the, the audacity of the drag back. It mm-hmm. was just like he stopped, paused, and just moved the ball slightly to one side and rolled it in. And it was just a, a real thing of beauty, I thought. And, and Sammer's goal just showed that, like, this is, you know, this is a sweeper. This is a centre half, and obviously, Sam went on to win the Ballon d'Or and, you know, gain a lot of accolades in 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 this year in football. But it was just like a nonchalant sort of taking it down, just volleying it in after the chest trap. A very similar move to what we'd seen from Djorkaev in, in the previous game that we were talking about, but obviously a little closer in and and finding the back of the net on this occasion. But it's like a real. You know when people say Rolls Royce footballer, you know you hear that yeah. phrase as somebody who just has yeah. a real the tu- everything about the touch and and the motion of that goal looked completely effortless. He just kept caught it down and just volleyed it in like it was it was nothing. And yeah, this is uh, this is a height of Mateus Sammer in this tournament and just showing how very good he was and he he could manipulate a football in in any way he wanted. I think it was that goal as well that was uh, Marcus Babel, who was another one of the back three, yeah. who cro- who crossed the ball for Sammer. 
So like there there's two of the three centre backs like attacking. Oh, they they had such a fluid system that like those guys could bomb forward and Dieter Isles would just stay steady at the back and make sure nothing seeped through. Yeah. Uh, but one other thing, like um that that Zucker goal, like Andreas Kopka was no was no joke as a goalkeeper. Like he was like legit one of the best goalkeepers in Europe at the time. I think he I think he was at Madrid at this time. Yeah, this is um, this is slightly before as well. Like Kepka's almost um kind of cruelly forgotten by time because it was just right before Oli Khan started rising mm-hmm. to prominence and taking over from him. But yeah, he was he was properly classed in this tournament and it just goes to show I think a lot about Germany that no matter kind of what the era of football, they always find a combination of talent to put forward and and you know even in in tournaments where they'll get to the final and say be disappointed by not winning but they'll just find a way to put together a combination of players that manage to do a very good job and and are very kind of clinical and yeah like Alan mentioned Dia Ielts there he was he was very good in this game just one of those traditional sort of Deschamps-esque water carrier type players who just make sure that he keeps everything solid and you know everyone talks a lot about in modern football terms, you've got the the kind of overlapping centre back system of um, uh, of Sheffield United, and uh, you mentioned like Marcus Babel, Virgin Ford, and I think Germany in a lot of these games played that very similar system where Samuel would stay central as a sweeper, and then Ielts drops back in as a two, and you would see the two um, in the back three either side of them bombing on forward and playing very similar to that underlapping, overlapping style that, that you see in modern terminology. And it makes me wonder if a young Chris Wilder is at this game, in particular, in the stands, <laughs> watching it with an open notebook and, and <laughs> thinking, that's how I'm going to have some of my team play, I think. Well, th- that, I have to say, that's another thing that's really lost to modern football is the sweeper. Yeah, it's it's dead. You don't see anyone at all. Like I honestly can't think of the last person who would call a true sweeper. No, I I think it's kind of changed into more of a libero role, right? So now instead of a sweep, uh, like instead of a sort of traditional sweeper that that Samuel was, you do get uh, in a back three. You would have the center, the center back controlling, like you know, for instance, like Louise in, in Chelsea's title when three years ago was very much that sort of libero style player and, and having a lot of three mm. balls and, and controlling games from from deep and then just sitting in there. But yeah, that is that's I thing. tried it's it not, with uh, it, it, even it at is, Roma and it didn't work out for us. Yeah. yeah i just think the term's kind of lost i think people prefer like libero you know in the same way that people prefer like trey cortista to false number nine it just sounds a little bit more you know continental and interesting whereas yeah Mm. the the traditional sweeper role like r.i.p to that uh any any more memories of this game before we move on no i i, I have nothing really that hasn't yeah. been said so in the interest of it's sad to see croatia go they gave a good accounting of themselves here germany got some lucky breaks um which they would continue to get throughout the tournament uh, definitely one of the stories of the tournament for me was just how lady luck was riding riding on their side and um yeah croatia sad to see them go yeah, but it's it's also like the genesis of a very good Croatia team who got to the semi-finals of the World Cup two years later. So they're kind of it's an arrow up for me, Croatia in this tournament. Later on that day, from Villa Park, we had Czech Republic one, Portugal nil, with Karol Paworski scoring the only goal of the game. Uh, I'll go to Jack first on this. Jack, uh, my most notable uh, thing of this game is that it was refereed by Helmut Krug, who uh, I now uh, in my head canon is male model Helmut Kruger. 
<laughs> yeah, when you said that just now, I was thinking immediately of Helmet Kruger um, from from the Hitman fame. Uh, everyone should listen to Link to the Cast if we want to learn more about Hitman. Um, but yeah, it, t- to me, this this is the Paborski game, yeah. right? Like, uh, I, again, it's like a kind of half full, maybe two thirds full Villa Park. Um, there's that sort of like, you know, dank sort of evening light as the sun is setting you know you get like the shadows along on the pitch and you look back at it and you just it, it, when you think of this game you just you think of that moment from carol paborski uh it, it i hadn't really taken in any kind of other stuff from this game into the memory banks when i was going back to watch it i didn't remember that uh they lost Latau at the end he was sent off and then had to like really white knuckle the last 10 minutes of the game and yeah, uh, just Portugal couldn't find a way through, despite the, uh, you know, we mentioned in the previous episode, the absurd midfield they had with, with like, Souza, Figo and Ricosta. Um, it just didn't seem to have the right balance in this game, and the Czechs were, were very canny in the way that they dealt with the threat of Portugal, I thought. Uh, what did you think about this, Alan? Czech Republic were just really, especially on, on rewatch, it was, this was the point where you really started to take them pretty seriously because like we talked about they got pretty much uh, spanked by germany in the first match in their first match of the tournament and you wouldn't have thought of them as doing anything then after that and then just gradually starting with the italy results and then building on it after with sneaking their way through into the into the quarterfinals and then just putting together this really good performance here and knocking out a Portugal side with so much talent and and that had been quite impressive it it was a real statement game I thought for Czech Republic and yeah it it put them through to the semi-finals they were still underdogs but they were underdogs that I think people respected a lot more than they did two weeks earlier hey yeah I mean there's not much you can add other than the like this was the Paborski game this is the game that got him to move to United um and yeah, like this Portugal team itself, like this, this is the one that a lot of people look back at as like the lost, lost generation of Portuguese football. And it's hard not to think of it like that. Like if they had had like a top line centre forward, like how good mm. would this team have been? Yeah, definitely. And like it cost um, Oliveira. I think well, he handed his notice in. And then went on and had a very successful spell as 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 Porto manager after this. But I think just probably one of those ones where he quit. Otherwise, he was going to be pushed out because he couldn't find the right combination to to go a bit further in this tournament. And yeah, aside from an excellent moustache, uh, <laughs> he's kind of committed to international football management history um, because he had a pretty uh, another not as successful spell as as manager of of Portugal a few years later. Uh, and yeah, it was uh, it was a sh- it was a shame because it's a it's a team full of really awesome players that I think people should you know some of them survived and ultimately would go on to form those those Portugal teams that were so brilliant in the early two thousands. But there's some guys like Sosa who just never really had the chance to get into the last stages of a of a of a major tournament with with Portugal and, and that's sad because I think then you know they remember for the club exploits but people don't remember how good he was for his national team as well. Uh, three days after this, we move on to the semi-finals, our first of which takes place from Old Trafford on June the twenty sixth. Yeah. So the two big facts I've got from the June the twenty sixth now. 
Um, I'll start. One of them is quite sad, and the reason I picked it out is because I think you guys might remember more about it than me. But um, a journalist, an Irish journalist by the name of Veronica Guerin, was was murdered on this yeah. day um, after being a crime reporter for the Sunday Independent for two years, during which time she received so many death threats. She got shot in the leg on her doorstep and then ultimately won the International Freedom of Press Award in December 1995. But she was um, she was murdered at some traffic lights by one of the crime families that she'd been reporting on. And yeah, I, I didn't know an awful lot about the stories. Do you, do you guys remember this? or? See, I would have been a little bit younger. So I kind of, my memories are more um, when they started doing the film a couple of years later um of veronica Guerin, but do you do you remember um lee the kind of um what an uproar this whole story was i don't um again maybe that i was just i was kind of kept away from kind of all of that stuff but like i i remember a different more like other stuff that would have been reported in the news at the time that definitely happened in my area. But, um, yeah, no, Veronica Guerin's death is not something that, like, sticks in the memory. Again, it'd be all just kind of going back and stuff that I've read since and um, the movie in particular as well. Stuff that just, you know, it, it as an Irish person, it's like one of those, like, like you say, a real landmark moment in the way organised crime was dealt with in this country what about you Alan this was obviously this story had ripple effects uh, one on as Lee said that the way organised crime was dealt with you know it led to the establishment of the criminal assets bureau and things like that and the state got really tough on organised crime but but do you remember this this story when it happened yeah I definitely do um, I, I, just, I, I don't think I understood what the deal was at all with the story and honestly um like I just remembered the the name and uh, just that she was murdered and she was a journalist and like I was eleven I I wasn't thinking through things like that very much but um the it was honestly only quite recently that I remember reading uh, I can't remember what it was that I, I never I didn't I didn't watch the film I don't really remember much about the film again that's me and my wrestling bubble probably but um. I remember something triggering me to read about her and the story a couple of years ago and just seeing the impact it had and everything that came about, like you said, the creation of Cab after and stuff like that, um, that was, I, I, I was, I was surprised and, uh, I, I didn't quite realize the the ripple effects, as you said, of the story until quite recently. Um, but yeah, it was it was extremely sad, and rightfully she's been um, honored and praised for the work she had done leading to that, and her legacy is, is a very positive one. I think was it was the shooting was it Newlands Cross or was it the Long Mile Road? It was Newlands Cross. Yeah, that's what I thought was when so when they went to do the film then a couple of years later, uh, and this is an interesting stat that will probably or an interesting fact that will probably pop Jack. Uh, the Veronica Guerin serious crime movie uh, that came out a few years later was directed by one Joel Schumacher of Batman Forever and Batman and Robin fame. Um, and starred Kate Blanchett, uh, among others, uh, as as Veronica Guerin. Um, that that's that's crazy. Yeah, I I so I didn't know an awful lot about the story. It didn't really make huge waves over here. It was it was kind of one of those things that was in the news and out of the news. But yeah, I, I read a bunch about it earlier, and it 
it was yes it's just super sad and like the level of bravery that this woman had like to keep on going when people were turning up at her doorstep and shooting at her and ringing her up and threatening to like murder and rape her family and stuff is it, you should check crazy. out the the film it's actually it's actually decent um and i believe that the gunman oh. was played by a very young colin farrell if i remember rightly um but wow. the the actual yeah. climactic there her assassination was filmed about 10 minutes from my house because it was during a, f- a phase where kildare and wicklow were very popular filming locations for for big kind of hollywood movies so we had veronica gear in there uh five minutes the other way from my house is where they filmed braveheart um so yeah it's it was quite a time to be in kildare <laughs> in the 90s with film crews coming through every few years um yeah, big um, big Melly Mel. Um, but uh, I and, and on more positive news on this day, um, Alan Iverson was drafted number one overall in the NBA three years after being wrongfully jailed, like in a sentence that was would have been fifteen years. Um, but they managed to get him out like four months later, arguing based on character, and then later they they appealed it and it was overturned in nineteen ninety five. But uh, yeah, this is a guy who went from from like three years before a 15 year jail sentence to being the number one overall pick in the NBA and had a super, super good like Hall of Fame career. Never, never won an NBA title, but uh... his documentary, I think it's on Netflix, is, is much must watch if you've never seen it. I, I, I never knew that about Alan Iverson. And I'm like, I would be like a casual um, NBA fan. Like, I love NBA documentaries and stuff like that and NBA history, but I yeah, never Yeah, uh, the that. Trial of Alan Iverson documentary that Alan mentions is, is an ESPN 30 for 30 um, who are absolutely class. Um, yeah, if you've seen the Jordan documentary, it's the same, like under the same umbrella. Um, but yeah, the, is, is that the one that's on Netflix? Yeah, it should be called AI, the trial of Alan Iverson. If it's uh, if it's because I didn't I didn't realize Thirty for Thirties ever got put on Netflix. Uh, yeah, so all of the Jordan ones are the on last dance. But if it it might, yeah. Well, was that was that a Thirty for Thirty? Yeah, it was obviously the same like people behind it and stuff, but I didn't know it was like an official Thirty for Thirty. Yeah, thing. it's it's under that umbrella. Um, but but yeah, that if it, it might even be a different Alan Iverson documentary on there. Like, but two interesting facts: he was the only like he was the shortest player to ever be a number one overall draft pick up to that point because he was only six foot tall. So pretty much everyone else, obviously basketball, you know, you, you're trying to get guys who've got height for obvious reasons. But even at six foot, he was still deemed good enough to be the number one overall pick. And he did a super interesting thing in his career where he like took a bunch of his money, snapped it into a bank account. And was like, right, I can't touch this. Like, I think it was like $10 million or whatever and, until I'm like in, I think it's like 45 or 50 years old. Um, and it's it's coming up for him soon. But yeah, he uh, he didn't have a great time in terms of finances and stuff after this. So that move, that like sort of uh, intelligence of whoever it was, if it was him who came up with it, but someone in his team around him, somebody in the Iverson fold decided to delay a lot of his money and put it like way way into the future um so yeah he's uh he's gonna be okay in the years to come as alan iverson because of that smart thing but yeah alan iverson one of the most interesting sportsmen uh even if you don't give a shit about basketball that you can find just read about him watch the documentaries it, it's super fun guy to, to read about uh our first semi-final uh the I, I think it would be safe to say less eventful one uh, is France Czech Republic it's nil all again it's penalties again uh, and this time it finishes 6-5 to the Czech Republic um, we'll start with Alan here uh, memories highlights of this one just 
talk about pale in comparison to because uh, I think this was the afternoon yeah. right and then the evening was so this the was at game. 4 o'clock and the uh, England game was and it was a weekday seven. and it was a weekday so you probably got a lot of people who I'd say like a lot of the adults in the country probably got home and maybe caught the end of this probably caught the penalties and I'd say like those first 90 minutes are probably like lost to time almost if it wasn't for um, the uh, replays this summer. But yeah, just such a such a large shadow cast over this game. And again, it's Czech Republic just um, pulling one out and, and pulling off the upset like they did against Italy. And they were ravaged as far as their team went coming into this they had so many injuries and suspensions and it was they were down to their like you would have thought that the first string Czech Republic team would have been a struggle um but like having to reach down to the the dregs of their squad like if you said this again going back to that first game against Germany if you said oh yeah they'll be playing at France later and they'll have to go with the guys on their bench and the guys who aren't even on their bench uh and you'd have just thought okay what kind of part-timers are we gonna have that being fielded here because these guys against germany are the first team god knows how bad the other guys are and uh, they just did brilliantly it was the same team spirit even though the players were different the same team spirit flowed through um yeah it was just a, a real a real uh good performance full heart from um you you, you know i don't have much uh analytical uh stuff to say when i go to when i reach for full of heart <laughs> to describe uh, their performance but th- it really was they they dug in and they ground out a result and they made it happen yeah but uh, it's alan you, you mentioned the the injuries and suspensions like czech republic going into this game they were four two up as in they had four injuries and suspensions they were missing suture parek latao Powell Kuka, who was like one of the best players for them in this whole tournament, and Babel. Um, but France also were missing Deschamps and Caramba in the midfield, who were like massive um, for everything that yeah, they tried but who, to do. Yeah, who did France bring in? Probably a lot uh, bigger names than whoever uh, Czech Republic brought in, I'd imagine. Yeah, they kind of had a bit of a shake up in the midfield. So um, Marcel Desailly um, anchored it. And you got Sabri Lamucci, who most people will know as the. As a f- current manager of Nottingham Forest, although not <laughs> not probably going to last that much longer based on their start to the season, uh, and Vincent Guerin in midfield uh, instead of uh, Karen Burr and Deschamps. But like Karen Burr and Deschamps, no relation to Veronica. <laughs> no relation to Veronica. No, Karen Burr and Deschamps were world class, and Lamucci and Guerin were not. So yeah, it it's not you know it's not quite as uh, as as drastic as as what the Czech Republic had to do. But all it did really was just kind of reduce the quality of this game because France were kind of bitty and couldn't really get things going, and the Czechs were just very content to be sitting deep. Right when you watch mm-hmm. it back, uh, Lee, uh, the the overwhelming sense in the room is uh, particularly when it's compared to the other semi final later on that there wasn't much happening here. Uh, do you divert with that opinion significantly, or are you the same in this not being terribly memorable? I remember nothing of this match. I couldn't find any highlights of this match. All I could find was the penalties. <laughs> so you just want to do a, a landstorm where I have no thoughts or feelings? Pretty much. <laughs> I got I got some stuff. Go on, round us out, Jack. So we, we mentioned Jokaev in, in the last game. 
uh, and like Lee picked up just like how much of a, an absolute diamond he was at this point in time. And he was so good in this game. Like he had a crack off, a crack to shot like off the bar from like 25 yards earlier on. Uh, and he, he had an overhead kick attempt in this game, which is a shame you didn't see the highlights because it, if it had gone in, it would have been one of the iconic European Championship goals. Like it, it just would have been absolutely superb. And it, there's like so much of a dirge of, of quality in this game that that one moment would have just lit it up and, and been very like very emblematic i think of this tournament in that we had a lot of tight games but they were often moment won by these like radiant moments of, of brilliance by a lot of players but yeah i mentioned france's midfield like in, in this game they're starting with lamucci de Saint-Geran and uh zidane but like two years later their their final uh world cup final midfield would be deschamps Caramba, Zidane and Petit with Vieira coming off the bench so it's like that to me is the difference between a France team that were pretty decent uh, but couldn't really find a balance to having people like Petit and Vieira and be the balance in there with Deschamps and then allowing guys like Zidane Caramba to, to burst forward from midfield and just had that real support and, and give the freedom to, to Djorkaev, um which which you know it's just it's 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 almost weirdly forgotten how good Yuri Jorkaev at this is at this point and I'm glad like Lee had kind of picked up on it but yeah five of the, the players that started this game were the ones that started the France 98 final Taram, Lizarazu, Desai, Jorkaev and Zidane and then the rest were kind of filled out and, and that team's kind of like going down in history but the one really sad thing that to me about this game so i made the joke earlier with with clarence sadorf being 20 years old and you know oh that penalty ruined his career but and it really didn't like he went on to heights after this but the guy who missed the penalty uh the decisive penalty was reynal pedros and he is a guy who he was the one who provided that awesome crossfield ball in the previous game and he'd been a League One winner with Knott in 1995, which was a Knott team that also had Patrice Loco in and just absolutely brimming with talent. And, and they got gradually dissected, like Loco ended up at PSG. And um, uh, you, you had Pedro's, he got uh, snapped up by Marseille as well. And that team were actually good enough to get to the, the Champions League semi-final. Uh, and they got knocked out by the Juve team that ended on winning it in 1996. So like, he he had some proper quality about him. But after this game, much like kind of Ginola when he gave the ball away to to not get France qualified um, for the World Cup two years before and ended up in England just because like no one in France, I mean, really, like he was just savaged by the media. The same thing happened to Renal Pedros, you know, he, he, he didn't really get much of a chance at Marseille. The president kind of wasn't very complimentary about him. And then he left for, for Italy afterwards. And for a guy who going into this tournament at 24 had you know got to the semi-final of the champions league and been a league uh winner he only ever played 49 professional games in france again after this which is just really sad right but luckily in terms of positivity story doesn't end there because he went off and did his coaching badges and co- had a few spells here and there before he took over at Lyon and anyone that uh the but the Lyon women's team so anyone that knows anything about the Lyon women's team is they're by far the best team in Europe and he won 
back-to-back Champions League with Lyon Famina uh, in the early 2010s. So there is a positive story for Renal Pedroza. I, I wasn't expecting such a happy ending. That was, uh, <laughs> that was a nice twist to the tale. You brought us back at the end there, Jack. What, what position was he, Jack? <laughs> so he used to play attack in midfield or wing, uh, depending on like the, the tactical setup. That yeah, But he was like a, a good right-sided player and he could play on the left as well like he had a bit of both and he's a very technical player but yeah this I mean if you read interviews with him this this moment um and the way he was treated by the media in France like I say who had had previous with this with Ginola um and obviously the absolute shithouse controversies that would happen with the French team say like up until 2010 uh particularly in Nicolas Anelka's uh case like it, it broke him a little bit and you know he just never really found his feet again after this but uh yeah, yeah at least there was like an element of success and stuff to, to what he did later on in life and you know he's he's got a really interesting story it's another guy that i would recommend googling and reading up a little bit because he's, he's at this point in his life he's like very um philosophical about all of it and yeah uh it's it's a shame because this is a great France team and everyone knew that. And uh, unfortunately for him, he wasn't there two years later in the squad when they eventually went on to glory because that could have been his redemptive arc. But it took him a couple of decades, but he got there in terms of, of something cool in football for him. I, I assume you, since you mentioned him there, I assume you guys all, since the last show, watched that awesome Anelka documentary on Netflix? <laughs> I did. You mean the one where... I know you did. <laughs> that was that, that, There was no doubt about that. I watched it the day it came out at like 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I have not actually. Is it that good, yeah? It's really good, Lee. Yeah, give it a watch. Like, yeah, you know, like as we established in the first show, I'm not a football man, but I was able to appreciate it. It's very good, and it's also insane how he downplays all of the shithousery and stupid things that he did in his career with just like a little sort of a shrug and a well you know particularly the canal incident which he was like well i'm not anti-semitic so if i do the canal then it doesn't really mean anything and i'm like wow <laughs> that's his defense for uh for for a potentially uh racist slash anti-semitic gesture so yeah other than that though it's, it's See, very i was gonna ask was he honest about all the shit he did wrong but obviously not <laughs> No, he was honest about it, but he just has the wrong opinion about <laughs> it completely. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I did it, but, you know, if I do it, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, yeah, that's his defense. <laughs> uh, we'll move on uh, to the other... I'm just trying to delay talking about this game. <laughs> Anything to delay it. Move on to the other semi-final. Uh, not much happening here. Uh, I'd say we won't take too long on this one. Uh, who was it? I, I've, got a, I've got a stat of a memorable thing that happened on this day. Oh, go for it. Yeah, Germany knocked out England. Healthy shootout in Germany. I think uh, late late at night we lost um, Albert Cubby Broccoli, who was the producer of the James Bond movies. So it was like a double tragedy for English culture on this day, funnily enough. <laughs> but yeah, do you want to hear some of the the press stuff before we even get Please. to this game? Well, I promise, I promise some top level racism. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that this is gonna and, it's gonna and you're saying you. it's even gonna top Alan's big Ron Atkinson impression. Even above that. So the front page of the Piers Morgan, and I want everyone to remember this. Anytime you see Piers Morgan and he gives an opinion that you're like, oh, Piers Morgan, he actually has some good ideas sometimes. I want you to remember that in 1996, that the front page of his paper that he was the editor of said, Achtung Surrender. For you, the Euros is over, Fritz. And then underneath it, the, the sub-headline was, England declares football war. 
on Germany. Uh, so they also had uh, notions of a tank to send to the Bild offices in Germany, which is one of the major national newspapers over there, and was talked out of sending a Spitfire to fly over the German training camp to drop copies of his paper, the Daily Mirror. Now you're like, oh, it was probably talked out of it by somebody sensible. This plan got so far that they'd actually hired the Spitfire and it was in the hangar, ready and waiting to take off to drop copies of the Daily Mirror over there. Uh, that's how close it was that, that Piers Morgan got to pull off this. And in the week so leading we were up... This to- we were this close to him being brought to The Hague. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Uh, in the lead up to this game, uh, the Mirror and the Sun run a joint campaign to get uh, Jeff Hurst's hat-trick ball back. Because uh, notoriously, Helmut Haller picked it up at the end of the game, the end of the World Cup final in 66, and just took it home and just kept it in his shed for years. Uh, and eventually, like, he gave it back and stuff. But, um, you know, they, they they ran this campaign for, for it and it was, like, you know, all part of this ultimately, you know, anti-German press thing. But what what made me chuckle is this, the Sun, right? They, they, they were interviewing um, the guy, I can't remember his name, the editor of the Sun, and he said, look, we're we're maintaining a jingoistic approach right we're not getting racist like the mirror and we don't have the xenophobic approach yet for some reason the front cover of their paper said let's blitz fritz and they got claudia schiffer uh on page three and they wrote here we go as in like hair as in the german for sir let's bring on the krauts um, so yeah, they were they weren't xenophobic at all. They were just being jingoistic towards England. Uh, but yeah, that is a that is a press review. Uh, Morgan has since published an extensive article in Four Four Two magazine where he condemns and greatly regrets his action. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's it was pretty awful. That was that was the run up to this game from the press. Now. Every time anyone watches, and uh, spoiler alert, Paul Gascoigne, just by the like literal inch of the fibres of his boot, missed the ball at the end of the game and asked themselves, why, God, why? you got to wonder if karma <laughs> is an effect. I was going to say, this, this place- game might be the largest exercise in hubris there has ever been. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I but, think it might have uh, been worse. In 2018, if they had got to the final, yeah, I, uh, I, I, after the game as well, they sent Jurgen Klinsmann a hamper, like a food hamper, to apologise for all of this and wrote peas in our time, as there were like canned <sighs> peas in this food hamper. But that was the Daily Mirror's way of, of apologising for all the stuff that they did. Anyway, shall we actually talk about the stuff that happened on the hundred-yard uh, patch of, of green grass that happens to be Wembley Stadium in this match? I mean that 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 sounds like shit you'd read like watching Dream Team. Yeah. Like Harchester make it to Europe <laughs> and they're gonna like fucking hire a Spitfire to fucking fly over the stadium. Jesus Christ, like Yeah. It's uh it was awful. It's all I mean it like proper hang your head in shame kind of stuff when I was going back and looking through for the stuff for this game. Well yeah. I'll I'll try at a talking point about the the game uh, right away. Are we all in agreement this is the match of the tournament? Yeah. Yeah great game it's well, such a good game of football like i going back to rewatch it i was expecting 
the drama knowing that there was kind of like knowing the sort of memorable moments and i wasn't expecting kind of much in between them just kind of a general sort of tension but holy god it's like non-stop there's action all the time there's so many great chances there's so many great moments just it this is a game of football that has everything i it was the most like obviously like during summer when I was re-watching all these games. I'd be lying if I said I had like my full attention focused on the screen for every minute of any one of these games. Well, this one, I had my full attention on the screen. It was, I was just, I was wrapped up in it. It was such a great game of football. There's so much happening. So many great performances. Like, God, some of the German performances. Um, Ryan Babel was amazing in this game just like he's just like a random guy you wouldn't even think of that had a great game but like all the the top guys kind of played really well too so many guys played so well for england uh jack will probably expand on that but yeah it was just a really just a classic football night like one of those nights you remember like again childhood plays a big part in this but even i'd say there's adults that will remember like the place they were sitting watching this game and where they were who they were with what they were eating all those kinds of things like this is one that just sticks in your memory bank and yeah i remember so much about this night i I think one thought that really sticks with me is and it was something that um you brought back about earlier on was as the time of day is changing i remember like the first half it was like still daytime and then they come out for the second half and it's that like late evening kind of effect and like wembley is like dark and just it just adds so much to the atmosphere and the look of the game and i there's only one other game i remember like that sticks in my mind from childhood of like wembley looking similar is i think it's the 93 fa cup final it's a replay between sheffield wednesday and arsenal and it goes to extra time and it just had that like awesome nighttime feeling and this just reminds me of that yeah it, it and it's one of those where jack between the the quality of the game and the the setting and the drama as it all unfolded I, I i think it's safe to say there's a lot of people uh younger than us who probably when they hear people talk about this game assume it must have been the final I mean, it felt like the final, I think, you know, not many people in the press had the level of, of respect for the Czechs. Um, and I think that after they went out um, or after they put out France, I think immediately everyone thought, right, well, then whoever's taking this game is probably going to take out the whole tournament. And, and, you know, that did play out, even though it does a little disrespectful. But, yeah, this it, it felt like the final in in so many ways um, oh. and yeah just right from the start what a game Shearer straight away from scores from the corner and honestly the I I wasn't at the game I was watching I was very young and tickets would have been nigh on impossible probably to get for this like um like the only hot ticket that year was Oasis at Nebworth I would <laughs> say uh just score straight away and the atmosphere in the stadium and the sound and the feeling i just remember feeling as a kid like oh my god like could this actually 
happen is this actually happening and yeah it was it was very sobering very quickly when um when stefan kuntz uh, he <laughs> I, was a big favorite i'm sure appropriate uh, name fa- for you <laughs> in that moment <laughs> uh, he was a big favorite of fantasy football over here the but the Badil and skinner uh program which you know looking back on it has some extremely problematic stuff just they were like at their height here i'd say between here and world cup 98 it was the nadir of, of them Wait, is Nadir is Nadir the positive one or the negative one? It's the negative no, one. That's the negative. Okay, well then, yeah. scratch that, Dave or Jack. <laughs> when you're editing, make me sound good there. Try to <laughs> just put, put in just the, edit back in the Ron Atkinson bit again. <laughs> what? What is? What, what's the opposite of Nadir? Peak. 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 Okay, I'm gonna leave. Uh, Height. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave a bit of silence, and I'm gonna say peak, and then another bit of silence, and then you're gonna edit this in and make me look good. All right. The Atlanta Three, Falcons. Two, one. <laughs> Peak. <laughs> Alan, <laughs> your delivery of that means I can't edit that in. That is just too funny to leave out now. Uh, I, I, if you just if you just repeated the line, I could have pulled it. But now you've made it way too. Just put it at the start. Just put it at the start of the show now. The show just opens with Alan going. Peak. <laughs> <laughs> straight into the 16 bit yeah Jack, you're like the you're the expert editor here you're the audio guru i just give you the material i expect you to work with it all right <laughs> alan mate this is too good <laughs> you're just adding to the material every time uh, you open your great mouth. stuff uh but but yeah before the game there was everyone singing three lines like they played it over the pa and you can find the footage of it on youtube and like uh for anybody english it just really does stir the emotions because it's it's so rare in this country that you can be patriotic in a positive way like patriotism in england is just tarred with fucking centuries of colonial bullshit and racism and xenophobia and just all of the stuff about the country that makes you hang your head in shame i don't i i find that very hard to believe jack yeah exactly like brexit and just every everything like all of that stuff like but this and 2012 the olympics and how people felt and the emotional the emotional response to 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 having a national identity that has actually formed around something positive that we could all channel and get behind meant so much means so much to me now looking back because it, it i really struggle and and i go i guess you guys probably like obviously you know the history between ireland and england but i just want you to know for like for people that right thinking people it is a real real struggle to be from a place that has this terrible history and you just like how the hell you feel so disassociated from all of these actions and all of this horrible shit. But this guilt exists, this like lingering guilt of shitty, horrible behavior from England over the centuries. So it's so rare you actually get to bask in a moment of positivity and not feel slightly ashamed for your national identity. Um, and this was one of those moments. And and it to me it is it's the singing of, of three lions and everyone and the, the, the sheer goal to go one up and it felt the same you know the world cup a few years ago as well with when we went one no up against croatia and um unfortunately in both instances 
it just fucking turned to shit very quickly. But hey, for those moments, those are the things that you kind of remember, you know, they're, they're pure moments. Like, this team wasn't effective with the whole, oh, who should we play where? Or, you know, oh, are we going to get Gerard and Lampard in the same team or something? Like, in the same way that that team, the World Cup, you know, in, in 2018 wasn't having that same shit thrown at them. There was just a sort of a more purity and a more a more area of positivity. Um, once we'd got over all the pre-tournament nonsense, it just the absolute love for the team that formed during this tournament was, was palpable. Uh, and yeah, it, 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 it didn't go well for the rest of the game and um, one thing i will say that that's interesting and, and i don't know if you guys noticed this when you're watching it back because golden goal have been brought in for this tournament all of the extra times and it's why every game that had gone to extra time went straight to penalties so far they'd all been cagey they'd all been tight there hadn't been an awful lot of real chances in those games whereas this extra time was crazy like we had Darren Anderton, who's often forgotten um, in in this game and and a lot in this tournament, really should have scored before the the Gascoigne moment. Like he 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 got the ball like pulled back to him and he he hit the post and he went so so close. And then Germany had an amazing chance as well down the other end before like a few minutes later the the poor Gascoigne miss and it was like wow holy shit! Not only has this game been back and forth all the way through, but the extra time's actually good as well. Yeah, I can't speak for like watching extended, you know, you know, extra golden goal periods or anything like that. But like, again, like this match, like like Jack said, it was it was just manic for the whole thirty minutes. It seemed, um, like I think one thing Jack left out was uh, Cunts had a, a goal ruled out. Yeah, as well in extra time, and I, like watching it back, I don't know why. Yeah. It- like there was, there wasn't a clear and obvious fail. It, it was one of those. It's a, a, like ha, same thing happened to us against Argentina two years later, and in, in the World Cup, where it's kind of like everyone's in the box and it's like a bit of a bundle, and I don't know the ref or the linesman or someone sees something, and because we don't have the the games being broken apart like they are now with VAR and something reversed mm. and rewinded, you look at it, and I guess in the highlights, and probably our broadcasters decided, well, it wasn't a goal, so we're just not going to show any highlights or any repeats of the incident. To figure it all out, but yeah, um, but again, like Darren Anderson, you mentioned, like he had a, an amazing tournament. Like this, this is Anderson at his peak, and again, I remember from childhood, like the guy was constantly linked with with Manchester United around this time, and for whatever reason, Ferguson just never pulled the trigger. He just couldn't stay and fit. Like, though. Af- that that was his main problem. Yeah, it was, it, it was after this time I really remember the injuries hitting him bad, where he was just in and out of the Spurs team. And I don't think he really had an extended run in the English team again after this point. No, I mean, Terry Venables was was super heavily criticised for, for leaning on Spurs guys uh, when he picked the, the squad that went to the Euros before the tournament. Mm. And Anderton was one of those guys who was singled out as like, oh, Darren Anderton, you're only picking him because you used to manage him or whatever. And I mean, even if that was the case... Like, like I say, it's forgotten just how good Anderton was in a lot of this tournament and how justified Terry Venables was for, for picking him. Um, he just, he, he really, 
took all of that criticism and ire against him but yeah he really felt like he should have scored and should have put us through to the final like so i do feel a little bit of lingering uh, annoyance about him but um, yeah well well just re- just remember the goal he scored in the tournament because that was worth oh that was great yeah. <laughs> um but no like i'm right in thinking that uh anderton and McManaman played wing back in this game didn't yeah, they? yeah we, we went with like a very unusual like formation in this game that's that's kind of what i was saying about uh, terry venables just getting super experimental uh, and, and putting the back three and just having his, his wing backs like bomb on forward and you just had this like super attacking direct approach and yeah it it probably was why um, it was easy to get uh, in behind the back three to put a ball in for, for Kuntz but it was also why we were flying forward and having lots of great attacks as well so I think Venable's decision to not go cagey with his formation really made this game awesome. Uh, before we get into the penalty at all, Alan, uh, what are your enduring memories of this game? Um, I think ooh, I, I know we've talked a lot about it, but I think I, I kind of said my stuff earlier. I'm trying to think, was there anything else I wanted to bring up? Um, uh, not really. Just yeah, just everything I said earlier. Um, yeah, I, maybe like when we talk about the penalties specifically, some things might pop to mind. Okay, well in that case, I'm going to take a backseat for a second and I'm going to ask Jack to relive one of the great traumas of his childhood and walk us through the penalties. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> First of all, uh, great penalties up until the point. Uh, they were all really good. Like all of Germany's penalties in particular were just all like right in the corner. The Germans the always corner. take good penalties though, don't they? I, yeah, they up to this point they'd just been absolutely freaking flawless. But it was just like Hassler, Strunz, Reuter, Zieger, Kuntz, Muller. They were all so good, all of their penalties. And uh, Seaman got kind of close to to one or two of them. But really, I, I just like, he was a hero in the Spain game, um, stopping the doll. But he just didn't have much of a chance here to to be that hero. And it's one. I think it was the the, the Zieger penalty was the one he came closest yeah. to. Yeah. And like it, it, it was, it wasn't far away. Like if if he got got a strong hand on that, he was keeping yeah, it out. It's just it, but again, it was like more the direction of it being in the corner. They were just they, they were so ruthless with their penalties, and and our penalties were really good as well. You know, Shearer and Gascoigne had some great penalties here. Platt, I mean, Pierce again. I mean, obviously didn't have the same sort of outburst after his penalty, but must have again probably been thinking, oh god, it's Germany and it's penalties again. And up steps Gareth. And now, a lot of the narrative after the game, so sure, people were pissed at at Southgate or whatever, but a lot of the narrative after the game was kind of centred around the fact that Paul Lintz didn't take a penalty or didn't volunteer himself for a penalty because he was kind of the, you know, despite actually being a pretty damn good ball player, um, he was kind of seen as like the hard man of this team, like the, 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 the central defensive anchor of of the team and uh him not putting himself forward for a penalty was was one of those ones where the radio phone-ins were like oh why didn't Incy take a penalty kind of thing and I often think in a you know like or to be the first alternate guy and I often think like the reason that people might not put themselves forward is if, if they don't feel particularly confident so unfortunately didn't Ince for the whole penalty or I might be thinking the Spain game didn't Ince have his back turned for the whole thing didn't even look at it yeah but they made so like all of that shit that he got meant that when he came to take a penalty that he didn't really want to take against Argentina two years later he ended up missing it 
Like, sure, David Batty missed a decisive one, but Ince also missed in that game. And I, I do wonder, like, who would have maybe taken his penalty if he didn't feel obliged because of the negativity that he got around. And then maybe, they, again, arguably, if Beckham had stayed on, he'd have taken it. But yeah, uh, Gareth Southgate, and very much just a, like a, a brave guy that he was the one who said after our five like frontline penalty takers had converted he was the one who put his hand up you know he he put took the burden on his shoulders and... but I mean, like like this is the thing like who who was left that had to take a penalty you had ints was McManaman and Anderson still on the pitch uh yep so McManaman would have still been on the pitch yeah i don't think we made any substitutes i think we kept the whole the same team throughout the whole 90 minutes which is quite odd and quite rare but yeah so you still had McManaman, you still had Anderton, uh, and then you're just into the the defenders. Into defenders, yeah. Yeah, Ad- Adams. Ad- Adams, Soke, yeah. Ince, and the two wing backs. Yeah, McManaman. So it was kind of like, yeah, that will, those were the options. And you know what? Like they they were both quite young at that point, McManaman and Anderton. And they, yeah. again, they might not have had the confidence. Like that's why everybody just kind of pointed the finger, I think, at Ince because he was very much, you know, his nickname was the Governor. And I guess with a nickname like that, everybody everybody expects something. And you know, there might have been other aspects of of, of Paul Ince as a person that the media in the UK might have been particularly biased against, which you can figure mm-hmm. out for themselves if you uh, if, if you see what I'm and- inferring. But hey. Uh, Southgate was ballsy enough and obviously he missed and obviously Merler stepped up and scored and did the most infuriating shithouse dance I've ever seen anybody <laughs> do but again we kind of the the way the media and stuff have been I think a lot of people probably thought that we, we deserved it but just purely as the team I, I don't think they deserved this I, I, I think it's a it's a really tough way for for a team that had been aside from maybe the Spain game pretty pretty good in the tournament and and really changed people's perception of the the English national team up to this point and uh, yeah it was it was a tough way to go out at least Gareth Southgate got a pizza advert out of it is what I will say so there was a small positive for him on the negative side of things uh <laughs> After this game, like of all places in Brighton, a Russian student was was brutally beaten because some people mistook him for a German. Oh god! Uh, there were there were reports of Audis and BMWs being torched because people were just angry about anything German. And there were two hundred arrests that night around the UK. And apparently, the Trafalgar Square riot uh, was the worst riot reported in the UK since the poll tax riots uh, in the Thatcher era. So yeah, turns out we 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 didn't take this so well. And then all of that national positivity and happiness that I was talking about before all kind of ebbed away. Just a- there's a lot of bad things that happen in the world right now, and we're all feeling a pretty tough year here in 2020. But um, yeah, I think uh, hearing about people's reaction to a football match in 1996 being like that i think it does uh, put in perspective that things weren't always uh great before the trouble we've had to deal with this year w- wouldn't you only love for this to be the most important thing to worry about in the world oh yeah absolutely but like just the idea the idea that people were that horrible that they do that it's like yeah it's people people have always been really awful in so many different ways and we're seeing uh, we see a great example of it there 
Uh, Alan, I'm staying with you. As a young, uh, self-confessed England fan during this tournament, was your heart broken at the end of the penalty shootout? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. Like, it was... Uh it was a real it was a real kick and just like so many of the things like the gaza fingertips or toe tips miss and things like that were just it was really gut-wrenching and like you you felt you felt they they had it you felt they were going to win it and especially with the early goal like it just looked like it was going to be like the dutch game all over again and uh yeah it was just a, a crushing heartbreaking way for them to go out and like like I said, I, I was would have been watching with the English coverage and I was as depressed as uh, everyone on the English television was. So, yeah, it was it was very disappointing. I uh, Lee, was it like... Uh, or Lee and Dave, for, for, for you guys, as you were saying, as you've said, like you weren't backing England in the way I was. Like, what was... Uh, were you watching it on RTE or were you watching it on um, English TV and... And did was there just a different vibe? Like I was probably watching the game, like because my my no one else in my family watched football. My dad wasn't a football fan, so like I was probably watching at most with like one buddy and like similar age to me. So there it wasn't like there would have been a load of people around us being like ah fuck England and that kind of a thing. And like what was it a different kind of atmosphere for you guys watching the match? Yeah, so for me, we used to, it's been a long tradition in the family that like for major football games uh, or tournament finals, indeed, we would end up going to my grandparents' house and and all watching it as a family. And, you know, I think I've said a few times before on on these shows that like, I only have kind of fleeting memories because I only would have been about six when this was out. Like, so I I don't have the, the same memories I would have of France 98. Uh, for this tournament but I do remember uh, in contrast to the picture painted by Jack and Alan um, when England were knocked out uh, an overwhelming uh, tone of ah (laughs) (laughs) there was definitely there was a little bit of I, I, I think if there could have been a result where both teams lost my entire family would have been happy because my my aunt is Dutch so um, there's always the kind of like uh, rivalry there with the German football team that like she doesn't want to see them do well, uh, especially when uh, Netherlands aren't in the tournament anymore. Um, but there was definitely before my granddad several years later would turn the entirety of his ire and salt on Manchester United after Roy Keane left and he became an, an anyone but United supporter. Uh, his spite. An ABU. I haven't heard that yeah. term in, in a, probably 25 years. His, his spite and his salt was reserved exclusively for bad things that happened to the English team. So this was a great evening for him. Uh, even if I wasn't fully cognizant of how shattering it was for the English psyche at the time. What about you, Lee? I mean, look, I, I play up like the anti-England thing just, just for fun, <laughs> but like at, at the time... And, and it's correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, at the time, I would have been very much like... These, these were footballers I watched every week. Like Some of them were Manchester United players. Like I would have been sitting around with my friends. Like we, This would have been appointment viewing for us. Yeah. So like we we one hundred percent were in somebody's house, possibly mine, possibly a friend's, and I think like I know my older brother would have been around fifteen, and he would have been very much of the anti like anyone but England kind of sentiment, but like us being like ten, nine, and ten, we were very much like oh well these are our favorite players and, um like we were just 
mad like we we couldn't understand it we got to see every game like of this whole tournament and just getting to see these players that we knew performed to such a high level like we we were very much supporting England without kind of like we were we weren't upset at the end or we weren't disappointed or anything like that but it was very much like yeah you know like these are the players we support every week so why wouldn't we want to see them go and, far and they seem they seem less special and thus almost like underdogs compared to these yeah. international men of mystery who you don't <laughs> know that have the german steel like muller like i mean like look at muller like he's just this suave debonair steely-eyed uh international cultured player that you and you get the commentators talking about this Muller he's some player and it's like okay yeah this is the best player in the world he's like 10 times better than all these English lads who I'm used to seeing all the time but god damn they're going to give it their best to to try and turn the tables on Muller and all his other amazing German players that I've never seen play before but must be amazing because they're getting hyped up and like at, at this point you weren't getting like weekly Champions League like I, I can't recall Champions yeah. League being on every week like, I remember specific games being on. Like, I remember a couple of United European There'd be, games. like, a highlight show. I remember there was this Champions League highlight show I used to watch. It could have been that. But, like, um, like so these were only, like, like you said, like, the European players were players you only saw sporadically. So it was, like, that kind of, like, well, these are the home team and these are the team we know. So these are the ones we support. And like I said, like, we were all Liverpool, Manchester United fans. And, like, these were the players that we supported every week so we were going to back them I suppose now that we're we're saying goodbye to England here we'll, we'll go over to Jack <laughs> we'll does, does that mean Jack, Jack, leave, Jack leaves the call now yeah, does he so we're hanging up on Jack <laughs> but um, no uh, we talked a little bit uh, at the start of the first part about how over the, the preceding couple of years and leading into this tournament the uh, media ire towards the England team had really started to ramp up Um Jack, is it safe to say in the couple of years that followed, uh, this was uh, another point at which it kicked up several gears after this? They just didn't ever change. And it it really is only the last few years where you have players directly calling out shit in the media, like Sterling with racism or, you know, specific like players will be talking about what specific journalists have done or whatever. Like in, in, in the World Cup in, in two thousand six, like the way they were with all the wags and stuff and Baden Baden and you know, like giving away that press like learning and giving away details of, of the team's movements and stuff in, in, in practice games or like training before the tournament and just over moralizing over judging making any opportunity to make these like players look bad uh and doing it all by saying it's in the public interest is it in the public interest for me if wayne rooney cheats on his wife i don't give a shit like how does he play for england i don't care like i don't care if raheem sterling gets a tattoo and people don't like it i don't give a shit it's one of those things like Um, unless they're committing actual crimes it's no one's fucking business like yeah like you know and even i mean like say like gerard who beat someone up in a fucking club in liverpool just because they took the remote um to the to the music that was playing and like there was less moralizing over that than say like Rooney cheating on his missus you know it's it's bizarre what they would they would choose the the sticks to beat these guys with you know like you know if there's people like John Terry where it's very easy because he's fucking handed them the keys to to be able to 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 break him down like to break him down it's it's fine but like 
uh, yeah, I just uh, the way the attitude of the press to the English football team has always been it's been ridiculous and it's like they wait for to publish things that are negative about the team before they go into the tournament and stuff. They'll sit on stories like you know, I just I the whole thing is it, it's infuriating and and like I say now that players have social media and a very direct and immediate way to comment on things that are published about them in the press and make the people that are publishing those articles look very stupid uh that I think that's better because before they didn't have like a direct way like a club would put out a statement or something like that whereas now like as, you know if a, a newspaper article comes out at, at 11 o'clock then probably everybody texts or whatsapps or whatever the player to say that this article is coming out uh, and they can immediately go on Instagram or Twitter or uh, make a fucking TikTok video to say this is absolute bullshit or like, yeah, this is the press just over moralizing or being racist or whatever again. So, yeah, I, I think that that the social media era has kind of had to force them into being less brutally awful, even though there still has that undercurrent. Um, and I think things have gradually changed, but it took over two decades after this for it to go away again. <laughs> We move into the final, uh, which feels almost like a moot point after uh, the drama of that second semi-final, and it was uh, Germany 2, Czech Republic 1, uh, a match that was decided on golden goal, which we've talked a little bit about already. Um, and I suppose it kind of, uh, like I said, it does feel like a bit of an anti-climax, but um, any thoughts uh, about this final and, and Germany's victory here? Uh, we'll, we'll go to Alan first. I think I talked in the first show about how I thought this was like a way better game than it got the credit for because of just how much of a um, after the Lord Mayor show is that the phrase? Um, after yeah, yeah, spot on. Uh, thank you, Jack. You can uh, amplify that when you're editing, just to make me even even sound even smarter. <laughs> I'm gonna cut the words off and move them around. <laughs> <laughs> that was the peak from you, Alan. <laughs> but uh, it, like, despite that, it was a really great game. Like, really, really good. And and Czech Republic gave such a good. Uh, accounting of themselves and they really could have won and like I said Germany were riding some luck throughout the tournament and they definitely got it here and the golden goal with Bierhoff the, the the big golden goal of the tournament that it's it's kind of remembered before and um, yeah it was uh, just a, a really good game of football that I enjoyed and if like you put this like if circumstances were different and this had an engaged hot crowd so to speak and yeah. um, like I'm talking about a wrestling match but if this is an engaged hot crowd and if this was in the Carolinas <laughs> yeah not your well I mean not, all the English people there were, were very much cheering for Czech Republic oh yeah so yeah they did they, they were engaged yeah they did um, but uh, like if it was such that it was happening in one of the countries of the two teams or even if say it was happening in a country where they weren't like the fans weren't super self-centered and kind of given up on the tournament after they got knocked <laughs> if out. If this wasn't in a country, a such shit a dig. <laughs> <laughs> like if, if I, I, I know you're more, not talking about like honestly, like I'm not even just saying there. Like 
Italy probably would have been the same. A lot of a lot of the big footballing nations probably would have been the same. Like they were. If go go back to Italian ninety, no one gave a shit about that. Uh, yeah, that, that game was shit. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, that was dog if shit. If this yeah. was in, if this was in like a country where the the home nation wasn't like, if this, this was like Japan and Korea in two thousand two, where they were just happy to have a. Uh, uh, international tournament with all these teams that the final would be treated as a big deal even though their country wasn't in it because they wouldn't have expected them to be in it if it was that kind of situation I think this would be remembered as one of the great finals of the era it's it's a hell of a football match and it, at no point did I find it boring it's honestly I think maybe after the England-Germany game I think it's my second favourite game of the tournament what about you Lee? Yeah, all I can do is back up Alan, Alan's points. Like, it is actually a really good game. Um, and it is, like, it is very much because of the England-Germany semi-final that this one doesn't get remembered. It just gets boiled down to the golden goal. And that's all anyone will ever remember about this game. But, it, yeah, it's like, it is a really good game. And, like, when you compare it to how Germany just, you know, brushed aside the checks in the first game, to like how far the Czechs had improved over these couple of weeks that they were like real contenders like throughout this game it just shows like and um, I mean uh, what year did the Czechs like I get awfully confused on the years on like Yugoslavia Czech Republic where they all separated so when did the Czech Republic start playing international football this was their their first tournament, I think, as Czech Republic. Yeah, that that's what I thought. Like, so to get to the final, like I know it's it's, it's a Euros. They were also yeah, the, the, they were also sixteenth favorite the, going into the, the tournament. The country as the Czech Republic was only about three years old at this stage. Yeah, so it's Croatia's first tournament as Croatia as well. Yeah, yeah. So like, just consider like they made it to the final in their first major championships. It's just a hell of an accomplishment. And look. Th- I suppose we have to talk about the golden goal because, I mean, again, it's all anyone remembers and just poor Kubac, the goalkeeper, just like he seemed to have a super game anytime I see him and then it just comes down to that one moment. It's so cruel. Yeah. I mean, to me, like you, you kind of talked about the quality of this game, but the thing that makes it a good game was just how bloody sloppy it was. So like, Germany go into the game with so many injuries that they actually printed up goalkeeper kits for like a few of their outfield players because they didn't have like any you know like the necessary sub keepers fit they'd sent four players home with injuries like Muller and Reuter were suspended and there were four other players who actually started the game that were carrying injuries one of them being Klinsman which is kind of why he wasn't necessarily at his best in this game really um but that 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 goal was kind of emblematic of the of the nature of the game don't you think like it was it was good because it was a little bit jambly and jumbly and all over the place like this is a thing where and it's something i was going to bring up as a talking point for this final and that is like uh, that semi-final like you know we, we we mentioned the golden goal we mentioned how it's kind of an underrated like a sneaky good game um but really, the defining thing about this final is how this tournament is remembered as England's loss rather than Germany's win. And it's something that's always been really fascinating to me 
um, how that has borne out over the years. And, and, and Jack, would you agree with that sentiment and how, or how much do you think that's just driven by the kind of English media narrative of we don't need to talk about anything that happened after the semi-final because England were out, so it's not important? Yeah, I, I think in Germany, like, they just kind of remember it for the fact that they won and therefore no one else. Maybe I, I'd be interested to see, like, what the Czech media uh, really thought of it. I couldn't find much about that. But, you know, for Germany, this was their fifth European Championship final you know, which is by far the record. And they extended that record when they got there again in, in 2008. Uh, and they've also won it the most. They, they, they have, they, you know, they, that was their third win in a European championship. So, and obviously like with all the world cup victories and stuff, I think it's just very much like, yeah, we got the job done. Like, and there isn't much more of an acknowledgement than that. And I think the Czechs will remember very fondly um, the progress they made, but yeah, I, I guess I only ever, think of it as just a kind of what could have been moment and maybe that is maybe that is just my my english uh bias kind of clouding it um i think an interesting factor in this game and i've kind of we, we've talked about sort of pivot point moments in people's careers and stuff but so matthias Sammer went on to be in the squad of the tournament and and won the ballon d'or and stuff but for the czech penalty he had a terrible challenge in this game um and it was his it was it was that that you know obviously the checks capitalized and even the penalty was awful that just kind of slipped beneath Kepka's uh stomach um but if the checks had held on and won this game one nil I wonder if Sammer goes on to win the Ballon d'Or I don't think he does and maybe he, he probably gets put in the squad of the tournament but people probably don't really have that sort of um uh, affection for how good Sammer was in this tournament and stuff in that one moment I have a talking point to build off that as we lead to my team of the tournament. Team of the tournament time. This was one of my last uh, my last points on the agenda before well, we how, sign how off. about this? How about instead of us all mentioning like a team of the tournament, how about we collectively agree on a team of the tournament? Okay. Okay. Well, I I um what was I going to say? I uh <laughs> Well, we can, we can base it off Alan's, and if any of us disagree... I was going to say... so. Oh, yeah, this is what I was going to say. I was going to say that, again, I'm not a football man, and I don't want to be criticised for any of my uh, my picks for being um, just uh, chosen without much knowledge of actually what makes a good footballer and uh, who gave good performances in this tournament. But, yeah, my hot take was that I wasn't going to have Samer in there. Um, I have him on the bench, can't, can't leave him out of the squad, but... Uh, I didn't have him in my in my team. My my team formation that I went with, uh, and then we can start uh, thinking of players to slot into it. Uh, I I had a uh, kind of based off kind of the way certain teams played, and I had a four one two two one with the the two behind the striker being kind of wide. So um, if you can picture that, it's kind of like it's kind of like a back four, and then a little Christmas tree on top of that. So, uh, um, but. Uh, yeah, I think goalkeeper at a tournament is quite an interesting one. Um, uh, do, do we have candidates in mind? It, it, it's David Seaman for me, but... Me too. Yeah, I, I, I would say Seaman very much, yeah. Dave, you can be the contrarian. And, no, and no, I, I, I fully defer to your expertise, my friends. I feel bad for David Seaman because he gets remembered for Ronaldinho and he gets remembered for Naeem, but he was one of the best goalkeepers this country's ever produced, probably second only to Gordon Banks. 
uh he's just one of the greatest goalkeepers that ever lived honestly so uh yeah uh, Seaman was class in this tournament and I wish he was remembered more favourably but at the same time don't care club wise because he's obviously an Arsenal player. I was just going to say but he also played for Arsenal so yeah, <laughs> um, yeah exactly you, so you, you mentioned... want people to forget him getting done by Ronaldinho but always remember him getting done by Wayne Rooney yes and Naeem and I was just going to say and Naeem, Naeem. Uh, yeah he, so his, if that was a midweek and the game after that was was they had uh, Chelsea at Stamford Bridge and the entirety of the Matthew Harden end were saying let's all do the Seaman and they were flapping their arms about wildly and you know what fair play David Seaman turns around just laughs and gives everyone a thumbs up so that just shows how much of a nice guy I think he is and kind of that attitude is why you always kind of you know got back off uh, got back out of a bad situation and straight back on the horse I uh, had uh, Kuba the Czech keeper on my bench mm-hmm. and uh, an honourable mention to someone uh, Jack mentioned earlier Andreas Kupka who had a, a very good tournament too Kepka's probably my bench keeper but um, yeah just because of that mistake from Kuba for the Beerhoff um, golden goal uh, we didn't even mention Oli Beerhoff, by the way, who hadn't had an amazing tournament up to that point, but comes Very on and wins the final. Yeah, uh, quite the uh, cemented legendary status for himself based on based on that alone. Um, I, he was someone that like this happened, and then in the years following this was the real like peak championship manager years for me, and he was like always a guy you saw and took note of because of that memory, but he was never any good. Like, you'd see him and you'd think about buying him and his stats would be terrible and finishing 13. Oh, no. Leave me <laughs> go. Um, He's an absolute legend at um, Udinese. Like, you know, for years and years, like, he was the, the go-to guy, but I wonder how many people were watching Udine, apart from, like, the occasional football Italia diehard. Well, I, was go- I was going to say that seems like it was very much his level. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, he, like he 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 had an amazing season and then moved to Milan uh, and had a decent first season and then just dropped dropped off a cliff and then after that it kind of never really worked out for him. But like he scored two goals. In fact, say if you you know if you guys are familiar with the BBC show BBC show Pointless, if you were doing like in the last thirty years, guys who'd scored winning goals in uh, in in either the Euros or the World Cup, I'm guaranteeing Oliver Bierhoff is a pointless answer. Like no one's gonna remember him. Guys, I have a, a flat back four, um, and now I will say two very attacking, full attacking-minded fullbacks. Um, but with the knowledge that there is a, a, a defensive-minded central midfielder sitting in front of the the back four, so um, fullbacks, um, I'll put forward my nominations: Gary Neville on the right. What a peach of a cross for uh, that Shearer goal, and just all round played really well. And was a guy that was missed by England when he was suspended. And on the left, a guy who had a storm of a tournament rampaging up and down the left flank for Germany, Christian Ziga. Yeah, I, I would, I would definitely go with Ziga. Um, I think he was class in this tournament. Um, I'd be tempted just because of the level of performance um from his t- his team's defense i'd be very tempted to go with lilian Turan as right back you know like this is his his first good. first major tournament and he was absolutely class and you could see every bit of the player that he was going to be in the years to come and i just think from a defensive point of view they were so solid they had kind of rotated france rotated around center backs and stuff in the tournament and and the way they were setting up but Turan was like an ever-present 
on the right hand side for them. And, Lee, yeah. do, you, do you want to split the Taram uh, Neville argument, or do you have a third name to throw into the mix? No, I, I'd very much go for um, Neville on the right. The only other name I'd throw in for the left hand side would be Sergi. I thought he had a very good tournament yeah, anytime yeah, I looked yeah, the Spain game. Sergi, yeah. I, I wanted to put on my bench, but I had another left full back that I had on there, and I was like, it's no point having two left backs on the bench. I had Lisa Rezu, who just, I was yeah, always Another, another good shout, yeah. Team of the tournament, they stuck Maldini in there, and it was like, like we mentioned in the previous show, it was like, oh, they just have to put him in there. Because Sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah. There, was, there was a lot of great fullbacks on show in, in this tournament. There was that mm. guy for Portugal. Um, His name is Dimas. Uh, he was really good. A lot, I, lot of a, good fullbacks. I'm a big, if you're going to go Portuguese uh, fullbacks, I'm a big Secretario fan. Uh, another guy <laughs> from that era who was a great right back for many years uh, in Portugal, like for Porto, and he just kind of gets not forgotten because a lot of Portuguese players from that era not having a lot of success that were, were very good kind of get rolled on the carpet. But Secretario for me had a decent tournament and just was a very good player for, for Portugal for many years. Center backs. Um, uh, again, a good few you could pick from here. I settled on, I think, two that might surprise you guys. I settled on two people who were bastions of consistency and had a couple of really uh, uh, real high points in the tournament, uh, especially towards the end of the tournament. State. They put in some really great performances. I've got Tony Adams and yeah. Thomas Helmer. So on one side, I had Neville and Adams, the, the English contingent. On the other side of my defense, I had Helmer and Ziga, the German contingent. So um, I might have an Englishman in goal. So yeah, it's very England-Germany for me so far. I would put Sammer above Helmer. I think Helmer was very good. Um, and like there was a real kind of just steeliness to the German defense, the way that they were playing um, in a lot of the games. But also there was like a little bit of exploration about them as well. Um, obviously getting forward and stuff like we mentioned in a, in a previous talk about one of their games. Um, so Helmer did offer a bit going forward as well, but to me, not as influential as Sammer in just a way like Sammer was like the key to, to a lot of German attacks and, and coordinating the way that that back four, um, sorry, that back five that they were playing with moved. And uh, yeah, as, as as solid as Helmer was, I, I'm going to put Sammer in there. I, I would broadly agree with, with Tony Adams. I thought Tony Adams was superb. I think the other guy that needs a mention is Laurent Blanc. Laurent yeah. Blanc had a fantastic tournament. Uh, Desai did as well. But to me, when I when I think of the team, um, this tournament in particular, uh, I think of Blanc and, and the way that he performed. I think Desai was maybe better like two years later for France because well, Blanc had I'll, aged a little bit more than I'll that. But, throw yeah. this out here since you've mentioned him. I actually have, and you probably think it was going to be Dieter Isles, but I have Marcel Desai sitting in front of the back four with the ability to almost play a sweeper role as well to bomb forward like Samer did. I just thought this, he looked like, maybe I was influenced by Kevin Keegan, who we spoke about Ron Atkinson having a commentary boners earlier. Kevin Keegan had a commentary boner for Marcel Desai throughout the tournament. He really put over how great he was in these games. And um, yeah, I, I saw it too. I thought he was, he was really good. So that's why I have him sort of sitting in front of that central defender or central well, midfielder playing very defensively. Well, but, how, uh, how about this first suggestion? I would have said Helmer and Sammer. So how about we go with Helmer and um, Adams as the centre-backs and Sammer sitting in front 
Sounds good to me. Yeah, that, that works for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I love Marcel Desailly, so I, I just want to put that out there. I'm sure you guys already know it, but that, <laughs> I mean, the 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 combination of being such an incredible footballer and just being so athletically dominant, even in his 30s when he got to Chelsea, just to watch to watch some of the stuff that he could do with a football and just the way that he could chase down people and just had the like raw strength and power. You could see why in a, in an era when Serie A was so um, like, there were just like, you know, moments like tiny moments of shading games. You could see why he was being able to play in that Saki Catanacho team, just mm-hmm. unbridled energy levels and real tactical and positional intelligence of the man combined. Fucking awesome. But yeah, Sam, this is a Samma tournament for me. So I got to have him in there. So we, we've got Samer floating either as a sweeper just in front of the defenders, whatever he was. That's how he basically played. He just floated around anyway, bombed forward when he wanted to, went back when he wanted to. So we've got him. We've got our, our four defenders, um, two guys attacking down the, the, the flanks from the fullback position. So with that in mind, I went with two sort of central midfielders kind of playing right in the middle of the park, not necessarily attacking, but can get forward and not necessarily hanging back. They were just able to do a bit of everything. I really like this tandem in the middle of the pitch for me. Two countrymen, two under-the-radar names from an under-the-radar team. I've got Pavel Medved and Redick Babel from Czech Republic. What do you guys think about those two? Yeah, I mean, decent shouts. Babel strong, was... strong endorse of Nedved, one of my favorite players of the, the late 90s. Nedved wasn't like, I don't think he was a starter. He really came on and grew into the tournament. And mm-hmm. Babel was someone who was just, obviously the first game was an exception for all the Czech guys. But after that, from that point on, he was awesome. He, he really seemed to be the rock of the team that like held it all together. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was a big miss in that France game as well, and when they weren't able to play him because he was like suspended for that one, um, and you just you noticed that that the assuredness in the midfield of the Czechs <coughs> changed in the final big time when he came back in. So I I think he's a decent shout to have in in the team. Uh, who, sorry, Alan, obviously been doing this for a while now. Who was your other suggestion for me? Oh yeah, you um, Pavel Nedved. Pavel Nedved is a, a class player, um, but. In, in this tournament, he, he maybe didn't stand out for me as much. Um, like, if I was going to have one, like somebody probably in that role, um, I'd be tempted um, to centralize him a little bit more and put Steve McManaman in there, unless you've got different plans for him in your formation, Alan. I, I don't. If I was going to put McManaman in the team, and he was great, and I, was, I didn't have him on my bench looking at it, but he could have almost deserved to have been. But if we were going to put McManaman in, I think I'd want him as one of the more attacking wider guys that I have playing off the striker. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean that's um, possible. Rui Costa had a a great tournament. As I, well. I have. He was the other one I was thinking. He'd slot right in there on that left side of the two central midfielders. I, I think yeah. If you wanted to go Rui Costa over Nedved, you wouldn't get an argument from me. Yeah, I. I what and do you that's, think on that, that? That's not a burial of Nedved. I love Nedved, but I think Rui Costa was better in the tournament than say Nedved. I I think Patrick Berger had a super tournament. Did oh, yeah. have a very good tournament. Yeah. I think he has to get a mention for one of the two slots. Um. Other than that, I mean, you could go, you could go with the very boring pick of Andreas Muller. Yeah. Um, or Deschamps even. I know, like, I know you've got. got I, I would. I wouldn't play Deschamps if I've got the five defenders there yeah. behind him. Yeah. Sure. Um. I mean, I mean, you have to throw the elephant in the Gaza had a had a really good tournament. Yeah, I feel like 
that might be one of the more advanced ones though that i i i'm just intrigued with this was it four one two two one that you've gone with alan well uh, to to me i'm going like they're they're kind of wide players aren't they the last two yeah yeah the the two behind the striker are are definitely guys who can float get wide attack into the box put crosses in a a bit of I was gonna say, I think you can go with like, say, a Babel or maybe a Burger, and then kind of somebody a bit more like a Gaza or Roy Costa beside them. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy. I, Gaza, would, I I thought like if he, if he's not in there, more advanced. I I almost got to have him in there because just this this is his last great. So okay, so t- pick between your two guys then, uh, Gaza or Rui Costa. Oh. <laughs> I, I'm so tempted to say both, but I kind of agree with you on Babel. I feel like he deserves more credit. Yeah, we'll put Babel on, on the right, just uh, edging out Burger, and then uh, Jack, you got the pick for his uh, guy beside him. I'm gonna go Gaza then because yeah, yeah. if he's not getting in further forward, then I, I gotta get him in here. Cause what has... a combination of, cent- of in the center of the park, Radic Babel and Paul Gascoigne. Who'd have ever go. put those two together? I love it. I love it. Um, all right, so then we've got again two guys playing off a central striker, getting wide, but also can float inside and then attack the goal. Um, I mean, he's he's a guy you think of when you think of the tournament. We've got to put Karol Poborski right in there, don't we? Yeah, I, I could I could put Poborski in there. I mean, that that moment alone. I think would put him in a lot of people's team of the tournament, but he was very good in in the other games. I've got him on the right. Okay. Yeah, I think if you having him on the right, maybe McManaman is probably the I, only. I was just I was just gonna say the, the the other it's McManaman one side, uh, Baborski the other for me. I love it. Okay, that's that works. I had Jorkaev on, on. I was gonna say Jorkaev yeah. probably. <laughs> I can't put Jorkaev in here. He's un- he Jorkaev. was unreal. Um. Yeah, it's uh, Jorkev versus McManaman. I could, I could definitely see the. They offer very different things in in the same position. I I would think Jorkev being more like touch and and vision, and whereas McManaman being more put the head down and and run kind of. That's that's why I'd kind of want to have them both. And I'm sorry, Paborski, great goal, great performances. But to me, the the two would more likely be McManaman and Jorkev. Would yeah, you be okay. your preferred two, Lee? I, I think I'd go Jorkiev and uh, McManaman. I think okay. McManaman had a su- had a super tournament. Paborski had that moment, and while he was really good throughout the tournament, I think yeah, you can't really ignore just how good Yuri Jorkiev was. That's fair. Okay, we'll 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 put Paborski on the bench as a compromise and uh, ready to come off and uh, play super sub if need be. Um, central striker then. Oh my god! I mean, oh, this, this is difficult. This is tough. You, now you, you've limited this to one. Like there's yeah. immediately three guys that jump into my head straight away. And it's away. one. They're they're up there on their own to an extent. They're getting support, obviously, but they're gonna have to carry the 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 load there at times. So you're gonna need a strong man. You're gonna need a, a a man with a lot of spirit. A man who's not gonna take any shit. And you're gonna need a man that's gonna win headers. And you're gonna need a man that's gonna put away the 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 put the ball on the back of the net. And I can think of no man that ticks all those boxes better than Alan Shearer. Hard um, to argue. I think cool. there's just two candidates. It's Shearer or Suker. Yeah, I, I want to have an honourable mention. And Suker his... had one terrible game. 
His team. Yeah. But, like, the, uh, honorable mention quickly, his team went out, but he scored in every single game. Stoichkov. <laughs> <laughs> he was awesome. Yeah, yeah Stoichkov it, was pretty it was good. Well, he, he, I think he was right at the end of his run, and I think it'd be very unfair to put him into the team. <laughs> yeah, I know, but uh, if he'd played for a better team in this tournament, like, he's get, he's probably... I mean, sure, it takes home the golden boot, but Stoichkov, if it, they even got to the semis, he's given them a goddamn run for his money. But I, yeah, it, it's Shearer or Shukair. I'm I'm going to go Shearer just because of all the pressure that he had coming into this tournament about the amount of time that he hadn't scored a goal for. And, you know, is he really worthy of his place? And I mean, he was worthy of his place. He scored in every single game except the except the quarters and no one scored in that game. So yeah, um, Shearer for me and I, I feel dirty because I, if I was doing a front two, I'd probably have Suka and Shearer, but if it's just a one, it's got to be Alan for me. Are you okay with that Lee? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like look, Shearer is one of my favorite strikers of all time. So I have no problem with him being in the team of tournament. I have a, I have a guy who'd actually do an incredible job in that role as well. Um, but you just couldn't put him ahead of the other guys we mentioned. But he he's he's made for that central striker role based on his performance in this tournament. He was so good putting himself about and just so integral to the Czech Republic team. That was Pavel Kuka. Kuka, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kuka was great. And I, yeah. I'd say, I think, like, if you were going for a top two, like, you'd have to include Kunz in the, in the discussion as well because, like, he was central to a lot of what Germany achieved. Yeah, yeah, he was I impactful. Agree. Didn't he have the re- minutes of some people, but he made the most of them when he did. And yeah, he really flashed in the semi-final as well. It, it's kind of like Kunt stepped up in the semi-final after Klinsmann had, had taken a bit of a knock in that mm-hmm. game. And then Beerhoff stepped up in the final um, and, and really just showed that Germany were that complete team where they could just kind of even bring in guys to to just come off the bench and make an impact um Klinsman was the main guy and i feel like if he'd stayed fit all the way through the tournament we might be talking more about him but but those two kind of when they had their moment they they didn't disappoint dave is there anyone we uh we i've kind of taken over show moderator here i feel bad <laughs> you've, now you've I'm done so a, into the team in a tournament you've done a bang up job Adam, is there anyone is there anyone we didn't mention dave that you'd like to give recognition to i mean yeah. it's a fairly exhaustive list <laughs> you put together here it's it's tough to add on to that um and always putting in my trying to get my boy nedved in there is gonna get some bonus points for me for sure i thought you might have been down to uh hear who my top three haircuts of the tournament <laughs> this is the content okay this, yes uh, as a closing feature for this show i can think of nothing better uh uh to call on our editor again, Jack, at this point, I'd like you to insert a jingle for Alan's top three haircuts of Euro 96. And now it's time for Alan Farrell's top three haircuts of Euro 96. Oh, yeah. I've got to say, the way Alan's taken over this show, like, you're such a natural. You should probably have your own podcast. (laughs) You're pretty good at this. I'm just just really into anything that involves, like, lists or uh, just nerdy stuff like team in a tournament. It's just so... That's that's what I'm all about. Like, I could do podcasts, like, doing lists or doing awards or things like that for the... Until the end of time. Uh, Alan, that... Okay, I tell you what. Maybe, like, at some point next year... What I'm going to do is I'm going to come up with 10 categories 
and they're going to be different lists about random footballers, uh, specifically <laughs> 90s footballers. And you're going to give me your top five in each category. And that is going to be a show that exists because it, it absolutely has to now. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, sign me up. Sign me up. But uh, sure. all right. Top three haircuts we've got coming in in third place. The bronze medal. Number three. We are giving it to. A man who I actually had on the bench in my team in a tournament didn't get to give him a shout-out. He's the only person who didn't get to give a shout-out to, but we get to give him a shout-out here. An absolute mane of hair, if ever there was one. Winning headers and the back and then steaming forward when he needed to. Fernando Coto of Portugal. I mean, it's it's glorious, isn't it? Like, full-bodied, feathered, just lovely hair that man has. So you could easily see, like wild animals having room to live in that hair and fly out from time to time and just the volume was just incredible um, uh, definitely i wonder like yeah that's one of those ones where you're like and it was so if you go and look at like stickers and stuff of him around the time they'd always find an angle that would make it look so shiny i just wonder what he put in it to just keep give it that that volume and that body it was it was glorious it's might have been the same person that kevin nash went to yeah, it, but it's a proper throwback haircut, isn't it? To like the sort of like late seventies, early eighties mullet slash perm type situation. It's just that he probably put in a lot less effort <laughs> with that barnet. That was just probably the way it naturally felt. But yeah, he kind of had that look of uh, of like a person in their first year of uni who's trying to establish a new identity for themselves. So they grow their hair out over the summer and then come in with this big mane in September when it all starts up. All right, number two, not number one that you, two. <laughs> not one that you might think of here, but he, I remember seeing him come off the bench, and uh, I was like, "Whoa, that is that is a hairstyle." <laughs> a lot of flowing mullets and long hair and everything on display in this tournament, but it was quite the opposite being sported by one Jocelyn Angloma who had shaved uh, a very intriguing pattern into his hair and a very, very sharp look uh, for number two. I I am now Googling this because I'm Googling to try and find a good picture of it, to be honest, and I can't really get one. Um, Yeah, it doesn't seem I like I Googled specifically Angela May Euro 96 and there's uh, yeah, it's like his stickers are coming up, but they were obviously from well before the tournament. So I can't actually find a good picture of it. But uh, uh, yeah, look up the footage. He had he had uh, an interesting haircut. I, I enjoyed it. It was very 90s, like, you know, you'd see, like, again, uh, going back to Japan, the Tokyo Dome, like, you'd see, like, Kensuke Sasaki or Satoshi Kojima rocking, like, this ridiculous uh, uh, shaved cut uh, for a big match in the Tokyo Dome. Oh, I've just found a great photo of Jocelyn Anglomar that kind of backs up maybe the point about his haircuts, where he's got, like, the kid-and-play kind of high-top fade combo with just, like, a slightly thicker than pencil mustache. Oh, I yeah, think that same one. It's on a sticker, right? Yeah. Oh, that's glorious. Look at that. <laughs> I never has a man embodied the look of eighties more than that photo. It's amazing. <laughs> All right, number one. Well, number one. We ditched him from the team at the tournament, but nobody is denying him haircut of the tournament. It's of course Karol Paborski. Yeah, that that boy had some hair on him. That's the that's the kind of haircut where like you know you're in, 
if like a uh, a woman introduces her partner to her mum for the first time and the first comment after he leaves is oh sure the boy's got lovely hair like that's the first comment that would happen if you brought carol Poborsky home for tea i think if you're a young woman <laughs> absolutely just then the 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 hairband as well that he had going with it it was just a great look all around but um uh yeah that's the top three haircuts of the tournament and outro jingle that was alan farrell's top three haircuts of year 96 god damn well, so I've got to now find two different pieces of music. Yeah. No, Jack, you, you, I'm uh, look. I'm not one to ask a lot of you on a show like this. So just you can use the same one. Yeah, uh, you totally haven't made any editing suggestions up to this point. But you're all staying in because they're too funny to cut out. Uh, I'll be honest. I was secret. I'm secretly hoping that they they, they all stay in. So yeah. as as they are. Uh, Except that uh, Nadir one. Don't let me, Jesus Christ! Don't let that out. <laughs> That's it. the <laughs> hardest one. <laughs> Good Lord, Jesus! Why do you want me to look like a mug to everyone? Come on, Jack. Well, on that note, that. that you might argue is either the peak or Nadir of this <laughs> show. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw things to a close. I want to thank very much my usual link to the cast co-host Jack Lazell for joining us. I want to thank my Days of Thunder co-host Liam Malone for joining us, and I want to thank uh, PW Torch's own Alan Coonan for joining I us. You, I thought the stumble there was you deciding whether or not you actually wanted to thank me for this because just of, <laughs> like how, just <laughs> the, the awfulness of me at points during the no, the last I, two hours, and also for like. Uh, forcing you guys to do this podcast and having the idea of it and uh, um, every ridiculous thing that has come from it, you are regretting <laughs> I, your life choice, Dave. I, like, do I, I want to thank this fool? Uh, I, I <laughs> seriously sure. thought of doing like the the, the serious, uh, you know, Jack from Link to the Cast, uh, Lee from Days of Thunder, and then finish off with Alan from the top three haircuts of Euro '96 podcast <laughs> <laughs> coming soon. <laughs> Uh, I can't wait for my 90s footballer list podcast. Same cast again, you guys, back on, and we're, we're getting that shit that's, done. That's what I was going to say. Like, we, we will be rejoining you again in about six months when we can all book a week off work to do the France 98 podcast. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Specifically, Lee, I bet you're going to be super hyped about that one. Yeah. Look, that's a great tournament. I have no problem covering it. Just give yeah. me advance notice. And yeah. Just as yeah. much Republic of Ireland in it. Um, Anyway, uh, on that note, we shall see you again whenever we do another one of these. Thanks a million for listening. Thanks to the lads for joining in. See you again. Bye. Peak.